the tall grass. Hello to the people over at The Debrief. I've just gone live there for our first crossover episode. I'm working through some technical kinks. I've never really tried this before, but I think this should work. I'm hoping that by doing it this way, I can hope to expose some of the YouTube audience to what we're doing over at The Debrief, which is a lot of fun. It's been really great being able to hear directly from you and to hear all of your voices and your perspectives and your stories from across the country over the past few weeks. So know that over on the call-in app, every day after we post a Bad Faith episode, I have been taking calls from the audience over there. I know it's only for Apple users. So far, it's a real bummer. I get that it's a pain. They're working on it. But you can listen to those episodes after they post, after they're live on your browser. And today, you can ask me questions here in the chat. And we, as a joint debrief Bad Faith community, can start to address them. If you're a patron of Bad Faith Podcast, you can find these um, you can post questions rather over at the Patreon and I will be reading them during this episode as well. The second half of this episode, I'm going to cut off of um, the live stream and go exclusively over on Colin just because we tend to go for hours and hours and I like the intimacy that is fostered over there in a visual free format. So there is already a queue. Let's see if this is working. If I go ahead and bring Andy to the stage, if we can hear him over on the YouTube live stream. Andy, you're on. What's crackalacking? Hello. Good evening. Can you hear me, Bree? I can hear you. Can the YouTube audience let me know if they can hear Andy? All right. Go for it, Andy. What's on your mind? All right. Perfect. Thank you first for, um, you know, <laughs> Hosting this, uh, when I saw the podcast and we talked with Marion Williamson about a really, I agree with everything you guys were saying. I think focusing on those key issues, uh, like the Medicare for all, $15 minimum wage, like being very policy specific like that. I really mm-hmm. think that's what's going to set a challenge for Biden come 2024. If there's that alternative that really speaks to those concrete, like economic issues i think that could really help Biden, you know get pushed left not really have this next party or this next candidate win but really i guess pressure Biden to adopt those policies i really i think that's something that uh you know when we speak to uh like our relatives or friends uh, i think that's something we need to do as well like when we talk about politics and uh, specifically those economic uh, very tangible things i think that's uh, a great way uh, to help fix things that are so wrong right now. Yeah, I'm reminded of how during the 20, obviously during 2016, but even the 2020 primary, everyone was forced to do their best Bernie impressions. You know, everyone had to pretend to be for something that had Medicare for all in the name, Medicare for all who wanted Medicare for everyone who hula hoops in a lower income neighborhood for three <laughs> weeks going and also gets a Pell Grant, like whatever a Byzantine plan that Kamala Harris had going on. Like everyone at least had to pretend because there was some awareness that someone on the stage was talking about stuff that people in the audience liked and they couldn't just turn a blind eye to it. And so while I would hope that whomever ran third party was doing it to win, I agree with you that it almost seems negligent not to have some progressive in the space forcing the conversation in a leftward direction. Absolutely. Thank you for that, Andy. Thank you, Bree. All right, Tom, unmute yourself when you're ready. What's on your mind? Can you hear me now? I can hear you. Hey, what's up, guys? Uh, so I'll try and keep this as quick as possible because the queue seems pretty long already. Mm-hmm. Um, I was thinking about 
the conversation with Marianne and then the conversation we had with Hedges and Sawant. And just wanted to highlight something. I don't know if you could clarify it or maybe something I don't entirely buy. But every kind of proposal Hedges and Sawant had really kind of seemed overly black-pilled or doom-pilled about the Democratic Party. And I'm thinking of that other conversation you had. Oh, this lady, I can't remember her name. But I remember her making a comment about how, like, the Republican Party is afraid of Donald Trump, but nobody in the Democratic Party is afraid of the base. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I'm remembering it correctly. I mean, yeah, I think that was also a, a episode with Chris Hedges and the politics of fear is, is how he often puts it. Or maybe you're thinking of a different episode. But no, I hear- think, yeah, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry about that. It's a little bit of a delay. Um, so, and that's kind of the thing I was wondering, because as, as awful and as cringe as the Democratic Party kind of is right now, and, you know, it really seems to have fallen a long way from its, uh, you know, kind of mid-20th century New Deal, all that other good stuff. Um, when I think of, like, let's say the Freedom Caucus, the Tea Party, you know, were they all sitting there like, who's the Sawant and Hedges equivalent over on the right? And mm-hmm. were they sitting there like pulling their hair out over, oh, we can't make it in the Republican Party. We have to split off and make our own Libertarian Party or Nationalist Party. And there are definitely people who do that. But they weren't like scared to co-opt the Republican Party. They went straight into the existing infrastructure and essentially took over it. Like, this is what Trump did. He yeah. just went in and he took over it. And well, like, Yeah, well, I'll, yeah, I'll say this because I actually went on um, Megyn Kelly's show today and we had this conversation where we both observed that there seemed to be at least a willingness or a a feeling on the right that there's a need for them to bend the knee somewhat to this like populist ethos, at least use the right words, even if it's, it's empty, these empty kind of populist promises that we got from figures like Trump. But the fact, the fact that they even make give lip service, I think shows demonstrates the stronger power of these kind of forces on the, on the right. The right is willing to burn it all down. They're willing to withhold their votes. They're willing to stay home. And the left isn't willing to do that. I think for two reasons, one, because ideologically, I think they're more substantively committed to doing the right thing on an interpersonal level. I think that when progressives say things like, gosh, gosh, we, this is a compromise bill, but we're going to vote for it because there's material benefit to our constituents. Like, I think there's some genuine desire to help people there that makes them less likely to want to, let the chips fall where they may, that they're always going to take the compromise vote, that they're always going to vote blue no matter who. But the other point that I made to Megan was there was actually more identity of interest between someone like Donald Trump and the Republican Party than there is between Bernie Sanders and the Democratic Party. It is all lip service with respect to Donald Trump. His main policy agenda, the biggest thing he got done was a tax cut, the overwhelming majority of which benefited the 1%. He does not actually present a challenge to the broader economic systems just to, you know, the same old guys in the Republican Party who've been running things forever. But ultimately, at the end of the day, he's not a systemic challenger. So there isn't going to be as much pushback, even though there obviously was pushback, but there wasn't going to be as much pushback from a kind of a united front against uh, someone like Trump as there would be against someone like Bernie. So I also, I don't want to minimize the extent to which those two aren't the same. That's not to say, I don't think that we should try and that it's necessary, like the first caller noted, to have someone exposing the corruption of duopoly. But I do think it's, I don't want to understate 
the extent to which a leftist challenger is going to have a tougher time of it than Donald Trump. Yeah, 100%. I can definitely uh, concede that point. I guess in hindsight, my point is kind of stupid. But um, <laughs> then, then, don't say that, Tom. Then the last, okay, so the last observation I was going to make, uh, I'm going to tie two of them together. I, I promise then I'll shut up. Um, the one thing I've kind of, May, it's maybe it's a little hypocritical because I'm complaining about Sawant and Hedges and these types being like super black build. And I'm also kind of, I don't even know necessarily about a third party or however many parties. What I do kind of feel is that we're stuck in this situation partially because of the boomers as a voting base. Mm-hmm. And that, look, my parents are boomers. I love them to death. I want them to live forever. But um, as a voting block, I, like they kind of, need to go if any real substantial systemic and progressive change is going to uh, be implemented. And um, that brings me to Marion Williamson. And this is my last point. Mm-hmm. When I initially saw Marion Williamson, I thought she was like really cringe and awful. I, all I saw was like that one clip of her telling white people to offer like a prayer of apology. And I was like, Oh, Oh my God, what is this? This is so awful. Oh my God. And I didn't go any further into her politics than that. She was just the uh, healing crystals lady, you know, or mom and come to find out yesterday's podcast that the crystal stuff isn't even real. So I was I, definitely, I one didn't of those think see a single crystal in her apartment. <laughs> yeah. And so like, I was one of those like, you know, idiots on YouTube swallowing all like the anti-left bullshit, you know, that period in like the mid 2010s when it was like all over YouTube. And one thing, Marion's kind of grown on me, but not only that, here's why I think maybe she might have more success than maybe she thinks. Mm. It's all anecdotal, Mm -hmm. but she's grown. My father likes her. And I've mentioned Mm. my father to you before, Mm -hmm. not to do TMI. My father's an ex-felon. He's like a real working class guy. He's not a particularly like political person. He's the kind of person that rolls his eyes when you talk politics to him. Mm. And he actually really likes her. Did he say Why? He doesn't, he's not that articulate. He's not stupid, but, you know, it's like, he couldn't really explain why. He's like, oh, you know, she sounds like she's making sense. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'll take it. I mean, and that is that is a substantive observation. You know, we sometimes brush away statements like they feel like they're making sense, but voters can tell when there's an incoherence to people's ideology. I think that's why Democrats struggle so much, and more so than Republicans, because there is a consistency running through a Republican right, line of reasoning. They, they have their script down pat. There's a tension, though, between Democrats who say, oh, we want to do good things for good people. And also, we're not going to pass anything and we're going to have obstructions within our own party and all this kind of stuff. So I think that's a real that's a real observation. And I think that comes from a kind of moral consistency, by the way, that um, everything gelling together and making sense in that way. Bernie had it. And I, and I do think that Marianne has it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I would agree. And I was going to leave with this question. I wonder if you would agree with me, but I feel like of all the candidates we've kind of thrown up on, like the progressive wing of our party caucus, mm-hmm. whatever the hell we're going to call it. So I wonder if you think Marion Williamson would be, and I actually think she would be, she sounds, it feels to me like she might actually be able to reach across the evangelicals because there's something very like mm-hmm. spiritual and <laughs> Oprah-esque about her. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'll, I'll hang up. But yeah. That's interesting. If anybody here is an evangelical or has evangelicals in their lives who wants to weigh in on that, I would love to hear what their perspective is on that, because we all know how much, you know, how much the right has relied on that audience in the last 20 years or so to really 
entrench itself. And that could be a really huge boon for the Democrat. Well, however she runs or if she decides to run, it could be a really huge boon for her to be able to make um, make some hay out of that uh, group of people. I'm going to go ahead and take a question from the Bad Faith Patreon queue from Carol G. Um, she says, at a, a certain point, we have to start asking why it is that no one on this side of the aisle seems to have a clue what to do next. Why is it that no new approaches seem to be bubbling up to the surface? Why everyone seems to be waiting on someone else to tick things off? I gave my thoughts on that thread as to why this might be. I'm wondering if Bree could share her opinion as to why this seems to be the case. I think about this nonstop. <laughs> I think about this as someone who is an admitted novice, new to politics, and knows that I don't know what I'm talking about and thinking about. But then I see moments like, sorry, force the vote, where it seemed like the objection to the idea was that it came from a source that people didn't like and that it didn't come from the top down. And when, from the superficial conversations that I have had with people in the know, it seems like elected representatives literally just didn't know about it, just didn't, it wasn't their idea, and also they didn't know about what was going on. They only knew about the controversy and had personal feelings about that. And there just isn't anybody thinking things up independently to come up with those ideas a priori or to explain things to them when it happens. So think about what liberals have. Liberals have think tanks like CAP. Conservatives have their think tanks, the Brookings Institute. They're all sitting around churning out messaging points and polling data that informs said messaging and, um, you know, policy prescriptions. And there's people who are drafting this stuff and, and putting it in the right format to become law and all of this stuff. The progressives are working within a liberal framework and having to rely on those liberal institutions to create those products, which aren't progressive products. So now you have all these individual handful of progressive staffers, you know, staffs with these few handful of, you know, 20-somethings that are working on these staffs, trying desperately to reinvent the wheel all the time at the same time they're dealing with their congressional duties. And I think the left really does suffer from a lack of the infrastructure that can be innovating in the same ways that neoliberals of both parties are able to innovate. So we have our, like, Matt Brunigs, who are doing the Lord's work at their policy think tank and who put stuff out in the world that helps us understand and contextualize what's going on in these bills. We have Hillheads like, you know, David Sirota and da David Dayan, who help to translate stuff for us and come up with some notions every now and again for us to, to go on. But there really isn't the same infrastructure. And this is the same similar problem that we have with um, uh, the left media infrastructure. So that's I think that's one thing. There are a lot of other reasons we could talk about in terms of people's feelings of like vulnerability and office and stuff like that. But I do think people who do start up things like Matt Brunig's um, policy project are so valuable because I think the lay person doesn't understand how much this stuff is coming out of nowhere. Like every, there's no like big brain sitting here with an, who's an expert who, you know, it's, it's pulling the strings. Everybody's flying by the seat of their pants. And it's not surprising to me that, you know, Jimmy Dore can come up with a good, uh, as good an idea as anybody else has come up with in Congress because resources are stretched so thin. And, you know, it's difficult to know what to do about that, but I think identifying the problem is a good place to start. I'm going to go ahead and take the next caller, uh, Jesse, and meet yourself when you're ready. Hey, Bree and everyone listening. Um, I really enjoyed uh, your conversation with Marianne. Uh, for some reason, I 
resonated more strongly to this conversation than the last episode with mm. Kashama and Chris, mm. even though I would align myself a little more closely to Kashama and Chris politically. Um, I'm not entirely sure, entirely sure why I felt this way, but I think when I was listening to Marianne, she was giving me 2016 Bernie vibes. Mm. Uh, she was speaking very aspirational, uh, had that populist energy. I really liked her response to your question about litmus tests. And she mm. listed all of those, um, you know, all those things, you know, Medicare for all, student loan cancellation, Green New Deal. And, and of course, those are the bare minimums. Uh, yeah, I think uh, definitely connecting this conversation with the other episode. Uh, I think it, it, yeah, I think as as a left we need to figure out like a, a strategy whether or like what percentage are we going to commit to uh focusing our energies to a third or major party and commit to working within the democratic party i think the idea of having being a democratic you know running in the democratic uh primary it's a, it can be a good strategy then at the end pivoting to um to a third party or being an independent i think that's an interesting Think, uh, to you know, have a real conversation about uh, uh, overall because you know there's a lot of thoughts and ideas on that. Uh, but those are just my uh, initial thoughts uh, right now. <laughs> Thank you for that, Jesse. Yeah, I agree. And this is on me. I should have asked. I wish I had asked, and I'm sure they'll come back and talk um, to to us on the podcast about this. But to the extent that you know, both Shama Salon and Chris Hedges seem to object to the idea of running within the within the Democratic Party, and then defecting at the end if they're not treated well, you know, if the, if the process is rigged is that, you know, they said it basically wouldn't work and that the, the system itself is corrupting to run within the third party is corrupting as a matter of course. Now I have a little bit of a tough time with that. I think if someone ostensibly is uncorrupted a priori, then making the decision, you know, a month before the race starts to run in or out doesn't change you. And I would like to know specifically what institutionally do you think is going to prevent somebody from going ahead and sticking in the landing and running third party. Now, if you're saying that they can be coerced and pushed in certain ways, as opposed to just their will will leave their body because they are running as a Democrat and just it will infect their brain, then I want to know specifically about what kind of coercive tools exist on behalf of the Democratic Party so that we can talk about whether or not they are, in fact, insurmountable or if there's ways that we can push back against them constructively, knowing that that's what we're up against. But yeah, I also was struggling a little bit with the lack of specificity around why it was. I, I'm not committed to that plan myself. I, you know, I, I think that there is an argument that someone should just run as an outsider from the beginning. And maybe there's an argument that there should be many candidates and some should do inside and some should do outside and we'll see where the chips fall. Um, but I would like more, I would have liked more specificity about that. Um, thank you, Angato, for the comment. Uh, he said, or they say, what are we talking about? Don't forget the Trump party. I guess that was in reference to our earlier conversation about uh, the influence that Republic, you know, Trump, Trump Republicans or Tea Party Republicans have been able to have on the party uh, as compared to progressives on the Democratic Party. Thank you, Cat Purple, who writes, so progressives have no leaders and the people in positions that should understand politics don't understand politics. Well, I wouldn't say they don't understand politics, but people are people, you know, someone like, you know, part of why we champion or at least some of us did at one point champion the AOCs and Cori Bushes of the world is because they're regular people. 
And, you know, everybody is learning on the job. Even these folks who like have degrees and titles and stuff, they come into Congress. Nobody knows how to do that beforehand. Everybody is learning on the job. A hundred years ago, when Biden was first elected as the youngest ever senator, <laughs> you know, he, he was also learning on the job. Um, and it's not, I don't say that people are struggling to keep up as a way to condemn them. I'm just saying that realistically speaking, progressives in particular have less infrastructural support than other folks. And we should be attuned to that. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, let's take for revolution. You're up next. What's on your mind? What's your question? Hey, Brianna, it's time for a resolution. That's what that little. Oh, sorry uh, about that. It's (laughs) It's all good. Uh, (laughs) Anyway, I got a couple questions. If you, I know there's a long queue, but hopefully one will be quick and one will. Hopefully both will be quick. First is talking about 2024 and also 2022. I know it's a subject that you don't cover much, but what do you think like COVID aspects are going to play into the politics of, of these upcoming elections as far as lockdowns, mask mandates, school mask mandates, and booster shots? It's, it's not great. It, so this came up. Uh, somewhat during my conversation with uh, Megan Kelly earlier today, and I actually reached out. To How do folks. we find that? By the way, is that out yet? Just uh, I believe I believe it was live. I think streaming okay. maybe on her channel. I can. I'll probably retweet a clip when I find it. Um, and then okay. also, it's being Sweet. produced as a and, and podcast form. I think in the next day or so. Uh, okay. But you know, the conser- not just conservatives. A lot of people because school is the only affordable childcare in quotations. Obviously, that's not their purpose, but the only affordable childcare that people have in this country. It's not really a conversation about what people actually think is um, prescribed from a health perspective. It's people don't have the option to not have their kids in school, not to mention the educational consequences and uh, the social consequences and all the trickle down effects of people being isolated for all this time of kids being isolated for all this time, you know, so people are between a rock and a hard place and Republicans have capitalized on the fact that most parents for whatever reason can't handle their kids being at home and have really drawn a line in the sand and Democrats are now kind of coming around to it. I saw some tweets from secretary of education, Miguel Cardona trying to like toe this line of, I respect that people feel differently, but I want to really congratulate this school for getting kids back into classrooms and and that kind of a thing. And I think the fuzziness of the Democratic message is going to be contrasted with the clarity of the Republican message. And it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt because there's no good solution other than having a robust child care system, having had all the medical interventions that we should have had earlier in COVID in terms of testing and the ability to um, have the infrastructure to distance people and having mass distributions and or having the initial hardcore shutdown in the beginning that could have mitigated a lot of these effects. It, and it's tough. I don't see the Republicans, I'm sorry, I don't see Democrats winning that particular rhetorical battle and even kind of shifting gears in the last minute isn't going to come across as authentic in in my view. But some of you are parents and stuff, and I'd be curious to know how you're feeling about it all. Yeah, I mean, I think, so this, this uh, I think, at the time it was the right decision to lock down and to start those lockdowns in, in March of, uh, of 20, 
and April. And I think in hindsight, some of that was, was misguided. I think as we look deeper and deeper into this, it's really uh, a sickness that affects people who have health issues to a large extent and who are elderly and who are obese and focusing treatment and getting them the COVID shots that they need and the pre-treatment they need is more, I think, the direction we should have gone and would have helped. I, I really have a problem with school shutdowns, um, the the detriment to to kids on that is so great and virtual learning is is not a replacement for in-classroom learning it just isn't um and we're seeing that in the test go ahead to do i mean that that even to me seems like another infrastructural problem you know like how are we america we're not a country biden certainly isn't a president who's prepared to provide the um to address the comorbidity issue that you just described. Like when I was in the back and forth with Megan Kelly today, she was like, well, you know, my, my grandparents, I, I mentioned that people are, you know, kids are coming home and people, I was describing the concerns on both sides and that people come home, kids come home and they bring the disease home and there are people at home with comorbidities. And she was like, well, my grandparents, I don't, I don't let my kid be around my parents either, but they're, they live separately, et cetera. And I was like, well, Megan, that's great. But so many people don't have that option. So many people grew up with their parents in the household. You know, my grandmother lives with my aunt. Both are immunocompromised. And my aunt, until recently, worked in a hospital in an opioid treatment environment where she was at high risk. You know, what do you do? And so if you're, are, are we prepared to say as a country we're going to provide the support for people to isolate and to protect people with comorbidities because the comorbidity conversation can slip into a kind of eugenics conversation of, Oh, well, (laughs) most people aren't affected. It's just the sick people who are affected. So let's let, let's let the chips fall where they may. And that seems unacceptable to me too. It seems to me everywhere you turn, there's going to have to be some substantive intervention and support provided by the government to make sure that whoever is on the disadvantaged by the policy choice is supported. And so this, we have people fighting with each other when really it, what it is is that we should just pick a lane and commit that if you are the winner in the lane that is picked, you are going to support the social services that make the losers come out even, you know? That's how we should structure society, period, COVID or no COVID. But well, that's agreed. not the society we have in America <laughs> right now. But it's we're working on we, it. It's what we fight for and what we what we want every day. And, and so, yeah, on that, I mean, anyway. It's a. It could be a very exhaustive conversation, and we could. There's plenty more to discuss on it. But let me ask one more question. And sure. there's a long queue behind me, and I'll jump down. Um, so, going back to this conversation, we even talked about it a little bit last time I called in last last uh, Thursday or Friday, whatever day it was. Um, Mary Ann's a great candidate for 2024. I disagree with her on some things. I like her on most, and that's enough for me. If she jumps in, I'll be a, I'll, I'll support her through and through. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't see how she, if she had stayed in through some of the primaries, which I just finished listening to the podcast. As an aside, I wish the video came out when the audio did, but because I always like the video a little more. But I know there's some logistical side to that. I or it's just it's just me and I mean Ben Ben does what he can. <laughs> I know. I I understand. I understand. (laughs) I'm just being selfish. Um, (laughs) You know, 
if she'd stayed in the primary a little longer and had gotten through a few states and had gotten a little, been one of the last few candidates and had more name recognition, then maybe try the three party thing. Mm -hmm. But the last time a third party worked, and I again brought was Ross Perot in 92 and much less so in 96. And since then, they've not gotten a lot of support and then been blamed when Democrats lose, which is not their fault. Um, that's a scapegoat issue mm. and Democrats shirking their responsibilities. Uh, but, you know, I don't see how you can run as a third party unless you're self-funded and like a, a multi-billionaire and there's no multi-billionaires in this country uh, that I know of that have the politics that would get us to where we need. And that well, would, what do you that think about the attractive. fact that Bernie Sanders outraised everybody else in the field by multiple magnitudes? I mean, obviously, a third party is not going to attract the same support because a lot of folks just don't agree principally with the idea of a third party spoilers, et cetera. But let's say that a, a progressive third party person who made themselves in the mold of a Bernie style candidate and who also was capitalizing on the frustration with Biden, who has historically low uh, numbers. And if it's Kamala, we all know what her numbers are like. Or if it's Amy or Pete, we'll see how Pete responds. Like there's a potential that there's the same kind of sense of frustration and disaffectation that existed in 2016. That could result in a lot of small dollar donations going to a third party candidate. What do you think about don't that? You think, don't you think Bernie benefited from being a Democrat in, in, in the primary and that somebody runs in a third party that the media is just going to completely neglect covering them of course that's going to diminish their their of course but that's that's what i said that's what i said in my preamble that was that was the point that i was making in the preamble that of course there's differences that bernie is running as a democrat but some percentage bernie outraised like quarter to quarter someone like kamala harris or pete Buttigieg by like factors of five and six so if bernie you know and those candidates not Kamala, but people to judge. Many of those candidates were in through the first few races. So through the first few contests. So presuming that some fraction, half a quarter of those people were willing to invest. Moreover, the fact that the independent person would also benefit from not being a Democrat, right? And get perhaps attract um, some support from independent voters and non-voters. I think it's an open question, but I wouldn't write it off as, as someone having to be a billionaire or entirely self self-funded but thank you for I just, that um i gotta i gotta move on down the list i'll drop down thank you Bree. thank you so much all right jason you're going to be up next but first i'm going to read this question on the screen lol gray is the only corporate lawyer in the beltway that you don't have want to have drowned in the potomac i'll take it <laughs> and i'm going to take um one more thank you cryptician um for the super sticker um, Angato again, beware of Republican state leadership committee, 33 million towards secretary of state positions, control of voting. Um, you're going to have to unpack that for me a little bit more Angato, but I appreciate this. Um, uh, Kendall link says Marion Williamson has a slim chance of making it against a dim machine, even with little hope. How do we convince her to run third party? That's an interesting question. I don't know if you listened to her interview with Andrew Yang today, but it seemed like she was seriously considering it. She's already processing what it would look like and what it would take and talking about it. It sounds like seriously with Yang, who obviously has this forward party effort. So I don't know how much she needs to be convinced versus how much she's, you know, assessing strategically what the best options are for a progressive candidate. 
assuming, of course, that she's even going to run. This is all very speculative. I want to remind everybody. Um, Vincent Batten, thank you. Given that uh, many don't seem to be sold on the efficiency, sorry, of the efficacy of running a candidate third party and the fact that we are seeing larger swaths of Republicans supporting good policy, why shouldn't we consider running a GOP candidate? I've said it before on Colin. I had a family friend who's like a very upstanding doctor type who I've always joked should go ahead and run uh, as a Republican in the southern state that he lives in. I, I, I'm I'm not mad at it, but let me know what you guys think of that. Jason, uh, you are up next. Unmute yourself and let me know what's on your mind. Hey, Brianna, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. What you thinking about tonight? So um, I just want to preface what I'm going to about to say uh, because it could sound like a critique, but it's more of a concern by saying that I've I've been a huge fan of Marianne's for a while. She actually mm-hmm. helped me. Her books did help me, you know, through a dark time in my past. So I I really do feel like she's the real deal in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, my concern is that you know spiritual leaders you know, in this country do have sort of their place in society in the context of like the social sphere. Um, They do help with like, you know, cultural progression and sort of, you know, for social welfare and stuff like that. Um, My concern is the translation of those figures into the political sphere. Uh, Because I mean, we, on one hand, we still do have like the the separation of church and church and state. And I know she's not an official like spiritual figure, but in a certain respects, there's that corollary, um, you know, because I'm, I'm a Catholic, actually. And, you know, mm-hmm. I love my priest. I go to church every Sunday. I don't know if I'll vote for my priest. <laughs> so, well, do you think that's, that's do you think it's the same thing? I mean, she's kind of very assertively not religious. Is spirituality the same the same thing? Um, I think for in the eyes of some people, um, I, I understand that her message is more of a universalist spiritual messaging, right? And that's why I do think that she does translate across dif- uh, different um, religious institutionalized people. But I think in the eyes of some, there might be a concern that the spiritual element of her might disqualify, um, you know, just because, you know, we we have had spiritual figures in the, in the past, but they sort of always stayed in the cultural realm. But the translation into the political realm is, I don't know if it's that uh, coherent. I don't know, Jason. I feel like every president historically has to do all this pop and circumstance and pretend they're, you know, an altar right. boy <laughs> in order to be president, even though I think most of them are not religious at all. And so it's the exact opposite that Americans demand a display of religiosity from their candidates, even though substantively don't they don't live by any broad humanistic principles that are embedded in, in most religions. So if anything, I think the fact that she does have this already relationship, the spiritual relationship with millions of Americans as a best-selling multi-time, multi-time best-selling New York <laughs> times author, um, you know, who is familiar with people in this way and who is willing to talk in moral terms in the same way that I think Bernie was, you know, right. Bernie wasn't so explicitly spiritual, but he spoke in very clear moral terms. And I think that that's part of what really connected with people. So my perspective is that that's a help, not a hindrance for her, but um, other callers should let me know what you think and weigh in on, on, on Jason's perspective here. Thank you for that, Jason. Absolutely. Thank you so much. All right, Andy, you are up next and meet yourself and let me know what's on your mind. Hi, Brianna. Um, Long time listener, first time call and caller. And I've been uh, for the past couple of call and episodes, basically thinking uh, of, well, really wanting to just ask 
the question of why isn't anyone talking about AmeriCorps? Uh, I felt like in the student loan um, conversation, you mentioned that kind of uh, the Neolib Center has talked about, oh, well, here's all the tasks we can make people do instead of uh, outright forgive loan forbearance or, or do loan forbearance. Um, and also on the more left, AOC mentioned years ago, a massive expansion of AmeriCorps as part of the Green New Deal. And Marianne ran on creating a whole new departments of the government, like the, the Department of Child Wellbeing or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I'm basically uh, just curious about, uh, oh, why this isn't uh, brought into the... Con- I mean, Marianne seems like a federal jobs guarantee kind of girl. Uh, when we talked about... When you talked about the PMC conversation with Catherine Liu, it felt like a national service program that's mm-hmm. not related to combat might be a kind of cool class reckoning program. And so I'm just wondering if there's something I don't know about why, um, or a reason I just am not thinking of that America has been left alone as a program in the mainstream political conversation when it seems like it could be an exciting new uh, policy idea to bring into the foreground. Well, I certainly can't speak for mainstream Dems and why they don't talk about any number of things that are progressive uh, priorities. But I think it is wonderful that Marianne is thinking along those lines and the people on the left are thinking along those lines. And so hopefully that's a section of the conversation that will become amplified if someone like Marianne, ends up participating in a primary season the same way that, you know, Bernie put Medicare for All on the map and Bernie slash, I guess, Elizabeth Warren put a wealth tax on the map and, you know, Andrew Yang put um, uh, the freedom dividend on the map, Mm. you know. So thank you for that, Andy. I appreciate that. Uh, The next caller is Anna. Anna, welcome back. Hi, Bree. Thank you. Um, I was excited to hear a, a shout out to uh, the sociology. Yes, I brought you up in the conversation with Marianne. You were on my mind. Your comment was on my mind. <laughs> um, well, so, I mean, I kind of wanted to talk about that, but I also, um, I guess I feel like I, um, what I think it was Jason, what Jason was saying, his critique on Marianne, um, I feel similarly though, but for different reasons. Mm-hmm. Um I, uh, Cornell West, I was thinking of him in particular mm-hmm. as someone who has talked about, like, I, I think he says it like prophetic vision, mm-hmm. um, not being the job of a politician and that like, um, to have that kind of leadership, you have to be able to stand outside of political office because, um, that's where you need strategy. You have to negotiate, you have to compromise, mm-hmm. um, and that it's like a, a different thing. And with Marianne having that as her uh, kind of her project for so many years, uh, I just wonder how well these things actually fit, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I think there probably will be a tra- trade off. I mean, there definitely would be a trade off, you know, if she became president of the United States with her spiritual practice, you know, the, the job that she normally does and being a spiritual advisor to people. Um, and I think that it is true what you know dr west says about the corrupting influence of politics i don't think anybody comes out unscathed you do have to make certain compromises it's why it doesn't seem especially appealing to me but i don't know that that's an argument for good people not getting into it because what's the alternative people who already suck being the ones who are in charge you know i i think personally i'd rather have someone who seems to be starting from a high place of moral fiber and accept that there's going to be some corruption that that happens, but we end up in a better place than we were before. I understand that some people, some people need to stay out and remain our spiritual touch 
touchstones or ethical touchstones that continue to push and pull people in the right direction. But sure. Somebody, I mean, somebody has got to do it. And no, you know, definitely. I'd be interested yeah. to know what, who else you guys have in mind. I mean, we're all talking about Marianne because of the Sunday times profile and obviously I just interviewed her and all the speculation that's been happening, but you know, there are other people conceivably Cornell West <laughs> conceivably, <laughs> you know, who knows? <laughs> Right, right. Sure. Yeah, I guess I just, um, I was just thinking about um, with with her in particular. And yeah, I mean, uh, I don't, I don't know who else should run, but I was just some of the, um, her approach to like, we in your conversation with her, she was also talking about, she was really like resistant to um, your talk around strategy or bringing people in and wanted to insisted that it's kind of more about having a good product and having your politics be, you know, these righteous. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and so kind of being like this light that people are drawn to because you've like, you're kind of like pure, you know, or something like that. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah. And I guess I feel like she's still playing the same game and I I feel like it's still the same question, you know, like um, how do I bring people in she's just making different assumptions about humans, you know, about what they're drawn to or, or something. I don't know. Yeah, Does that make any sense? About, uh, this question about human nature and what it is, I think is the fundamental difference between leftists and liberals and even liberals and conservatives. Yeah, I think about yeah. this a lot. And yeah. to me, as a leftist, sometimes I just skip right, right past the question of are humans innately good or bad or whatever, because it's irrelevant to me. I'm a humanist. I decide I've, I've committed myself to the idea that humans have an innate value and innate dignity, a, a need for them to be respected and um, protected and given a certain standard of living, regardless of whether they do good or bad or whatever. Um, and sure. I create, I think of the policy prescriptions I'd want for the country as a result. I think liberals believe uh, that there's a little bit less free will in the world and that even mm-hmm. when people sometimes do bad things, they still deserve some base, basic social social safety net stuff, but they don't have an intrinsic belief necessarily in human value. And so you'll get people saying, you know, conservatives in the South who are affected by climate change deserve it, you know, stuff right, like that. Right. And then Republicans yeah. don't think that anybody deserves anything, that you have to earn your place uh not just your place on the planet, but you have to earn a basic level of dignity in the world. And so they'll say things like, um, you know, the Pulse nightclub people deserved it for, you know, being gay, you know, that sure. sort of thing. Yeah. It feels um, weird to say that believing, oh, you know, skipping over human value makes you a more left, I, th- I, I think, decent, kind and generous person. But that's kind of where I am. It's not contingent. You know, my one desire well, to do good is more- not contingent. Yeah. Yeah. There's, well, there's a more, like I was thinking about um, what are some of the, cause, cause um, you know, Marianne was feeling like, Oh, it's dark magic doing psychology stuff. And I was thinking about, um, well, there's so many ways to approach our understanding of humans, philosophical assumptions and uh, values that like um, are in different, the different types of uh, ways of, to approach that. And I was trying to think of different types of um, psychological approaches that, uh, align more with the left. And I would kind of talk to you about it last week, but that like in the Bernie campaign, this, uh, 
um, fight for someone you don't know and uh, that like our struggles are connected um, plays to a certain part of something that's true about humans and that it's that we're relational people, yes. right? And so then you can use psychology um, to for things, assuming people are irrational and, and aggressive and uh, <laughs> that they you need, they need to be controlled. That was kind of the, I don't know, are you, are you familiar with Adam Curtis's work, like Century of the Self? No. documentary uh, I was that I don't know if there's like a word for like the origin of everything you're psyched about but like after I watched that like I just branched off in so many directions mm. um because <laughs> I was just really excited about it but like essentially it's just um about how um kind of Freudian psychoanalysis was um co-opted to like influence people and like the birth of public relations in the early 20th century mm. and how it um uh, had this belief that uh, we were irrational and that we needed to be kind of controlled, but they used some of those principles to um, for uh, consumerism. So to get people to believe that they'd be happier and more fulfilled if they had certain products and that like it's a, they're liberated in, in their self, like the self-expression and liberation through the things you mm -hmm. wear and all of that. Ever, like, Everlane sweaters will free me. <laughs> right, right, right. All of that. And so, yeah, so we can see it from that direction too. a very like um, individualist, like cynical uh, approach to, to psychology. So I don't know um, all of that, I guess. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you. You know, I think I don't want to spend too much time on that when I, you know, the time limited time that I have with Marianne, but I don't think that necessarily if we, if we talked about it more that we would be in disagreement for those who haven't listened, there was a conversation about whether or not kind of spiritual practice and social psychology can be used to as a tool of persuasion. And Marianne saw that as somewhat manipulative, I think was the word she used. And I said, basically any kind of persuasion could be described as manipulation if you really want to. But I think the yes. goals matter um, and kind of the transparency of it, I guess, matters somewhat as well. Yeah. Um, and I appreciate mm -hmm. her spiritual like perspective too, because I think that navigating leftist politics and like kind of trying to really like be invested in this fight is, um, uh, it can deaden you. I don't know. Like yeah. my uh, partner and I were just talking about how like, should we find a faith community? Like neither yeah. of us <laughs> believe in God and we're like, it might just feel nice. Like, I don't know. We feel, feel like there's a missing component to like for hope, you know, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, occasionally my mom had a mentor in college who belonged to this Episcopalian church and we would periodically be forced to go. Um, <laughs> and I, the, the Episcopalians were so nice. <laughs> They I are always nice. felt they're my favorite, honestly. They're yeah. really they're they're chill, but you know, <laughs> yeah. that's neither here nor there. I will say that I when I was talking to again Megan today, it was so interesting that like I kind of put that out there. Like obviously, everyone can understand the different sides of this teach you know COVID in school debate. Like, can't we just have just take a moment and just acknowledge that that people are coming to this in good faith? Not everybody, obviously, not every politician or whatever. Right. But individuals have different competing needs, and they're coming to this in good faith. And we should just figure out how to have more community, more of a sense of community, and give each other a little bit of latitude. She wasn't really mm -hmm. having that. <laughs> but that's a whole <laughs> other that's a whole other conversation. But thank you for calling in. Uh, yeah, Anna. thank you, Bree. All right. I want to recognize Talia dropped a comment on the YouTube live stream saying Nina Turner is also very spiritual. That's a good point. And I think it's why she resonates with a lot of folks as well. There's a real deficit of that in the world. I also see someone in the chat saying, who is Brianna talking to? The answer, if you're just tuning in, is that this is a joint 
live stream, call in, call. If you're not familiar, call in is an app that allows you to call in and talk to me and ask questions. You get in a queue. It's much, much like um, Clubhouse or uh, Twitter spaces and that kind of a thing. And I've been doing shows called The Debrief over here on Colin. It's a pun that nobody gets, but my name is in it, where we debrief of, of on the previous day's Bad Faith episode. So Bad Faiths come out Mondays and Thursdays. We've been doing Tuesdays and Fridays with some scheduling exceptions. So if you want to talk to me, if we want to debrief with us as a community, to, to Anna's point about the lack of a sense of a community, I'm hoping to build one here. You can download the app and come and join us. I want to read this comment from Dent, who says, Swant is good because she's accountable to an effective revolutionary organization. The first strategic step has to be scaling up such orgs. Completely agree. Uh, most of you know that I'm a member of Socialist Alternative. And perhaps if I were going to meetings more regularly, I wouldn't be feeling so isolated. So that's a good reminder to me. And I want to read a comment from the Patreon from John Knight. John Knight says, so I was looking at the calendar and was wondering, should Shama primary Pramila Jayapal this cycle? It's scheduled for August 2nd, 2022, and she lives in the district. I feel like with her grassroots support, name recognition, and media connect, she could pull it off. What do you think? I think it could be really interesting. I think it could be really interesting. It's a question I wish I'd asked her during the interview, and hopefully she'll come back and we can continue that conversation. Uh, and next in the call-in queue is Gregory. Go ahead and unmute yourself and let me know what's on your mind, Gregory. Hey, how are you? I'm doing well. Okay. Uh, real, well, I, I'm going to a different question here in a minute. But uh, first off, um, you know, I, I think we've talked a time before about, you know, I am a Republican, really more libertarian. But I just want to say I didn't know anybody who was a Republican that said the people in the nightclub at Pulse deserve that. Um, sure. It's a, it's there a, was a lot belief. of homo, There was a lot of homophobes. I agree with you that would say things like that. But. You know, a lot of us are just as much upset about that as, you know, on all sides. So I appreciate that, Greg. Certainly, okay. I don't think that's a, a common belief, nor do I think that most liberals are sitting around hoping and praying that people in the South who are conservative um, have personal harm befall them. But that certainly is an ethos that, hop, that pops up on both sides. But you agree that there is a certain um, lack of investment in the other community if it's perceived that the harm disproportionately falls upon them. You see it maybe right now in voting rights, right? The perception is that the people who are disadvantaged by not having the voting rights bills passed are the other, and therefore we don't care. People have to stand along lines or are otherwise um, uh, unable to exercise such a fundamental right. Right? What do you think? I agree. And, you know, I just to comment on there before I head the other way, you know, part of the problem is, you know, people have to volunteer to hold elections at their houses or community and – that really comes down to the neighborhoods and, you know, people have to do it in my neighborhood. You know, I actually volunteer down and help with uh, my neighbor who does it. Mm -hmm. And um, a lot of people won't do it. And so yeah. that's kind of part of the problem. I mean, they don't pay people money to do it. I mean, you're volunteering. Yeah. Maybe a little something, but nothing, you know, so it's like people got to realize if we want to make voting easier, we all kind of have to try to help people to vote easier. So, mm -hmm. um, well, let me let me know what was your what was the main question you had on your mind? Uh, I okay, you. okay. Here, I, uh, well, I'm just gonna say I did think Marianne was fascinating when I watched the debates. Um, she was on another level of talking and, and another mm -hmm. plane. So I, I thought she was amazing, and uh, I, I was really interested in her. But here I go. Uh, yesterday, President Biden said something that I, I was just interested on your take. I, I really didn't like it. He said that he thought you know that George Floyd was more uh, impactful than 
the assassination of Dr. King. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I grew up and I mean, we just learned always in school about Dr. King with such reverence. And so it, I, I'm not saying what happened to George Floyd wasn't impactful and it didn't matter, but I mean, Dr. King, comparing to Dr. King, that just, he's another level for a lot of us, you know? I mean, yeah. he was assassinated because he was a symbol for hope and change. And, you know, I mean, I, I don't know. I was interested to hear what your take was on that comment. Yeah. So for f folks who didn't see it, uh, my understanding is that that clip wasn't actually from yesterday. It was a slow news day. So the people found it, I don't know uh, if it was from yeah. weeks ago or months ago or whatever, but I saw someone like Weigel pointing out that it wasn't a contemporaneous clip. That, not to say that it doesn't, the substance of it isn't what it is. Um, yeah, Twitter was just playing it like crazy. You know, right, so. right. I Look, I think my good faith reading, and we know that I'm not particularly interested in giving Joe Biden a good faith reading, but I think it's only fair, is that he's making reference to the fact that the protests last summer um, were the largest numerically in the country's history in terms of bodies in the street and globally. Yeah. I think mm -hmm. that's, that's probably what he meant, that on a numerical that, basis, kind of, George Floyd had more people me? in the street. Right. So that's very subjective. But obviously, I think that is a very tone deaf thing to say. Uh, and it's a classic Biden gaffe. I mean, I didn't spend that much time being upset about it because – the the rap sheet of Biden gaffes and substantive issues with him is long, <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was distasteful and par for the course, what you're going to uh, do. Okay. And uh, I was just going to say, I don't know. I, I mean, uh, from your side, I think AOC is also another fascinating person that you guys have. I mean, she is so dynamic and I, I mean, all the Republicans, they just don't like her, but I think it's because they realize that she has something going on that, you know, um, you just don't see in most people. So I, I mean, mm. she is definitely someone to contend with. And I, uh, you know, I think she needs to see about, you know, ultimately running down the road here for sure. Cause I think she's got a good shot at it. Cause she's got some power. Well, I'm curious uh, from to hear from person. other, from other lefties in the, in the chat about that one, because you know, folks feel conflicted about her on the left space right now. You know, I started mm. my journalism career basically on the AOC beat Covering her for The Intercept, I started the job a couple of weeks before her viral video went viral. And Ada Chavez, Ada Chavez at The Intercept, I think, was the first to really write about her in a, any kind of mainstream publication. Also, Bridget Reed over at – she was at Vogue at the time. She's been on the podcast. Um, and so I was following her, going to every event. I was there election night when she won the primary. And it was an empty room one second. And suddenly everybody in New York was in there because it was so unexpected. You know, I interviewed her at South by Southwest in 2019 right before I joined the campaign. And having seen her – close and personal many times my feeling was that she really does have something she really you know the sky is the limit for her she is very quick on her feet and savvy and smart and dynamic and beautiful and all the things there's a reason why everyone was so excited about her the question is whether or not she can stick the landing and as we were talking about before the corrupting inf influence of politics having nothing to do with the kind of individual grit or merit or anything like that whether she has the strategic acumen or the personal fortitude to withstand the forces that are, you know, let being allied against her, you know, we'll see what happens. Yeah. But I know that she took a real hit in the eyes of many folks on the left this past year. And, you know, for the sake of the left, for the reasons that you pointed out in terms of her dynamism and the potential that she has, I hope that she's able to rehabilitate herself um, because we don't have that many soldiers in this fight. Yeah, she's she's definitely got something. So anyway, you know, there's certain people you see that in and you're just like, whoa, they have potential to be, you know, outstanding. So uh, yeah. she definitely seems to have that to me. I know she, you know, I didn't like it that she went to that 
stupid, uh, you know, gala. <laughs> you know, I, I, this is, to me, I was just like, it's kind of the people you're against, you know, and you, you should have been out there demonstrating against those people, not, you know. I mean, I know she was making a statement with her dress and everything, but, you know, that was definitely not the people I think she's supposed to hang out with, but I guess she's got to go where the money is too, you know, so I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if you heard our episode on that, but it's worth revisiting. Um, I'll see if I can find it. But I always appreciate you calling in. Yeah, I think the guests were um, Sia Weaver and um, uh, Afini. Okay. Uh, so if that helps with the broader topic was housing, but there's a clip, I think, of the end of the episode where you talk about AOC's dress. Thank you. I always appreciate, I appreciate hearing it from always. you, Gregory. Like, right, I, take care. Your perspective is really uh, important here. Thank you. Right, you thank take you. care of yourself, too. Bye-bye. Uh, Finn Shopes, thank you for this comment in the um, stream here on YouTube. Uh, they say, views on Caleb Maupin and his growing patriotic socialist movement with figures like him and Jackson Hinkle among it. I'm not that familiar with the idea of the movement, although inspired in part by Jackson Hinkle's um, kind of Twitter controversy. A few months ago, we did an episode about patriotic socialism with um, Professor Gerald Horn. Uh, where I put this question to him of whether or not progressives have kind of abandoned prematurely or liberals have kind of prematurely given up, quote unquote, ownership of these symbols, which could go one way or the other, aren't necessarily imbued with anything concrete. It could be imbued with whatever the left decides patriotism should be. So whatever it is that we love about America or America's potential, we could say that's patriotism and fight for it under the banner of the flag if we thought that helped folks come to the cause. Why wouldn't we do that? And we had a really robust conversation about that. So I will point people to that episode. Folks who are here watching on YouTube, please do like this video and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. There's always tons of comments that say, oh, Bad Faith is a criminally underrated, undersubscribed YouTube channel. You can help to change that. I see people in the chat, very negative on AOC here. (laughs) I hear you. I hear you. I'm going to read one more comment from the chat here. Both criminal parties killed millions. This is from D. D Lawrence. Both criminal parties killed millions with illegal wars, million Americans dead from COVID, not one progressive, parentheses, squad, bring up Medicare for all or ending war funding. How can we trust apologists like Marianne? You know, I think that's a, it's a question she's going to have to answer and people are going to have to see whether she continues to address those kinds of issues. I think that she's been pretty consistent on being an anti-imperialist and Medicare for all and, you know, has she's the one that introduced me, for example, to Stephen Simler, who we've had on the show talking about the expanding war budget. And like all of these people, whoever the candidate is, including Bernie Sanders, you'll just have to keep observing them and putting pressure on if and when they slip on those on those key issues. Let's hear from uh, Allende. Unmute yourself and let me know what's on your mind. Um, I love the fact that you always pronounce my name correctly. Like, (laughs) (laughs) but, um, my, my, um, main topic for what I want to talk about is like the idea that Marianne, um, said like about like, uh, a litmus test, uh, Mm -hmm. policy wise for like left candidates and really like my analysis for, um, like a problem that I see on the left is that like, we think of leftism in a way as like, as like, or rather I would break it down in three different ways. Number one being that like populism being anti-corrupt. Right. And then third, third, like these specific policies that aren't necessarily, um, aren't necessarily like tested for instance, for instance, like 
there's a difference between there's a there's a difference between UBI and a federal jobs guarantee, mm-hmm. right? But all, both are like you, you can kind of see them both as a as being populist, right? You can see them both as being like um, anti corporatists, right? But at the same time, like they exhibit they um, exist in two different like spaces on the left. And like my biggest issue and kind of there's this black woman you had on the show. She's an independent. Um, and she was talking, she kind of spoke to this about how like there are different, there are multiple ways to skin a cat, to skin a cat. You know what I mean? There's mo- multiple ways in order to achieve um, what we want. Like, Is that Tesla and Figaro? Of, yes. Yeah. Um, there, and like, my, my main problem is like this litmus testing, whereas Hello, you cut out. In terms of a living wage, right? Okay. Um, you can you can achieve a living wage essentially through UBI, or you can achieve it through a fifteen dollar minimum wage, right? Mm-hmm. And for and if a candidate were to run saying that they're not necessarily like for they're not necessarily against UBI, but they want UBI. I mean, they're not necessarily against fifteen dollar minimum wage. But they wouldn't vote it down. But they're they're adamantly for UBI. I have a strong feeling that in a lot of leftist circles, that person would be swatted down, deemed like you know some liber- like a libertarian or a right wing. Like Andrew Yang was kind of cast as this like at, at the beginning before UBI was po- was popular. And I'm kind of wondering: is there a way for leftists to kind of sort out litmus test people? without mm-hmm. necessarily picking, like, certain policies, whereas we can all admit, or a sizable amount of us can admit, that UBI is, like, you know, a pretty okay idea. Um, well, yeah. So, well, here's yeah. the thing. Here's the problem. A $15 minimum wage and a UBI, even in the best circumstances, aren't actually the same thing, right? Because a $15 minimum wage accrues to a worker, right? Not everybody can work, right? So a UBI can inert to the benefit of people who are retired, to children, to people who, due to physical disability, can't work, people who have mental illness, all kinds of things, right? So there are substantive differences. Moreover, depending on how a UBI is structured and how people frame the funding issue, there are people who have used UBI as an excuse to cut funding for other kinds of programs that is much more beneficial and much more money than handing the check out to the individual, right? It's a, it's a Trojan horse for cutting social spending and cutting the social safety net. Now it doesn't have to be right. But I think that there is some legitimate skepticism about UBI depending on how it's being framed. But to your, to your broader point, there certainly are different options of how these things could be done within the left. And I guess your question is, you know, which of these litmus tests should really matter for us as a left community. And I think Teslin is right that on some level, the kind of anti um, money and politics, anti-corruption message is what people connected to, to Bernie in 2016 and Donald Trump first and foremost. And some of these other policy prescriptions are less important. Although I would say, I would agree with Marianne with the ones that she listed being pretty foundational. But what I would say is that sometimes within the left community, we can start going at each other's necks really, really hard over what amount to not small differences, but given the gravity of the uphill battle, (laughs) that's so many mixed metaphors, but but given the gravity of what we're facing, um, 
starts to feel really self-defeating. So I really like hearing from Gregory and I'm really charmed and inspired by the fact that he sees something in someone like Marianne, despite being conservative. I'm really happy to be able to connect with Megan, um, uh, Kelly, despite our substantive disagreements on some issues, including corruption in the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. And I see those moments and I want to bolster them. And we can come back and circle back around to some of these policy disagreements. Like she and I disagreed about a $15 minimum wage. She thinks it'll hurt businesses. I said, au contraire, let's talk about how a lot of these progressive um, issues, including to Tesla and Figaro's point, Medicare for all, are a real boon to business owners, Right. And I think there's there's gains to trade there. I think there's a possibility for us to come inch closer toward each other and having this like battle royale attitude toward everyone who doesn't agree with your specific policy prescriptions could be a problem. However, I do believe in litmus tests. I wrote an article in the summer of 2020 about in defense called in defense of litmus tests in current affairs magazine. I recommend people go and read it. It holds up because a failure to have some baseline bottom line is how we got Joe Biden in the middle of a Tara Reid scandal, in the middle of everything, just there was no depth to which Democrats would go. Stacey Abrams was out here talking about how he was a good guy and Tara Reid had no credibility. And Kamala Harris said she believed everybody when the campaign started, when there were those eight accusers, but suddenly she's happy to be his running mate. And it's just, it's disgusting. And that's why people, this new poll today is out showing that nobody has any faith in journalism or politics anymore. It's that kind of flip-flopping nonsense. And like I, 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 I kind of agree with you that I greatly detest like flip flopping, right? And I want someone who has like substantive critiques. But like for instance, um, Richard Wolf's kind of like, or you know, I've I've listened to some of his um, lectures, mm-hmm. and the idea of like you know like worker owned co ops, right? Mm-hmm. What if what if a candidate doesn't necessarily like they wouldn't they they would not um like if if they were put in Joe Biden's position, they're not gonna not like um cancel student debt right but Mm -hmm. let's say their entire like their entire campaign is based like solely around right like doing everything within the power of the government to empower worker-owned co-ops their in their entire means of like achieving what we want to achieve in america is through like that kind of labor movement Mm -hmm. right are we is like as a leftist movement, are we going to swat them down and say that, like, no, you have to be for $15 minimum wage, et cetera, et cetera? Whereas- well, do, is there another candidate in the race, or are they the one? Are they the leftist left standing? Um, it, let's say it's the beginning of the race. There's, like, 50 people. Well, then they have to duke it out. They got to duke it out and and compete with the Marianne's, the Nina Turner's, or whoever else ends up running. It's, it's a primary. And if the majority of people like that approach— do we treat them seriously if they don't like, for instance, like well, let's say you have your own litmus test, right? Or like let's say you, Marianne, and let's say Shankuger, like you guys all have similar litmus tests, right? Do you uh-huh. ice them out? No, I I let the primary go and I see who wins. And when my state votes, I don't have a state, <laughs> but when it's time for me to vote, I sorry that was a DC statehood jab. Uh, I I vote for whoever I think is best and whoever wins the primary wins the primary. And then at that point, I decide whether or not I want to vote for the worker co-op candidate over Donald Trump or vote for third third party or stay at home or whatever. Okay. You know, it's just, it's a primary. There's different ways to be a leftist. Not everybody is going to check, check off everything on my list, but someone who had that approach, a Richard Wolf is infinitely better than anybody who's ever called themselves a Democrat in the history of America. <laughs> so, you know, I'm in it. I'm, I'm with it. 
(laughs) Let's do this, you know, but thank you. Thank you for your question. I appreciate you calling in. Thank you. All right. I'm going to read a couple of these uh, chats. I'm behind Raziel the Great says, kind of like we do with all these people, Bernie supports Israel, AOC still on board with Zionists, but you know, it's all good. Yeah. I mean, that's a point about there already being compromises uh, with respect to the progressives that are already valorized. Uh, Kindle links. Thank you for this chat says socialist undermined by deep state CIA, FBI, military industrial complex and duopoly. How can third party overcome? That's the ongoing question, Kindle. That's the ongoing question. But I do think that it's relevant to look at someone like Donald Trump. Marianne made some good points about Ross Perot. You know, there's a, a little bit of a cutesy. It's a little bit cutesy to pull this card, but you know, the one third party candidate to be successful is arguably Abraham Lincoln, who was running. You know, as a, in the Republican Party was the third party, uh, and on an abolitionist bent, that was certainly not em- embraced by the other two. So there is some historical precedent from this. On the last call-in, there was a guy who called in from India and gave some really important perspective. I really loved his comment. Uh, I think based on the the chat, a lot of you guys really liked his comment too, so it's worth going back and listening to that episode. Uh, Spontaneous Mix, thank you for this comment, says, if the government would have used FJG for infrastructure, a federal job guarantee for infrastructure instead of this bill, the Fed could have set the ground floor on wages without the 15. Fair enough. Biden did. Again, the good faith in me has to say he did raise the federal minimum wage for employees to $15 minimum wage. So that did happen. Baby steps, hashtag incrementalism, but it is a thing. I'm going to take one more question this time from the Patreon because I got to play it forward for the patrons. Joel David Rolstad says, thanks, Bree. Really like what you do. Going to skip past that. But on the issue of who we should join with in the struggle for a better world, who we should combine our forces with and who we should trust are trying and quote, doing their best. I find a separation with my beliefs and a couple of your guests. Marianne said, quote, I think we need to get off this arrogant, patronizing, condescending judgment that we have of other people because we see their externalities and make assumptions about them. She specifically spoke about billionaires in this regard. When you had Richard Wolf on, he said it doesn't matter what shoes you have on in this struggle for change. If uh, What if they are $200,000 alligator shoes and you have billions of liquid wealth? In all seriousness, I think it absolutely matters. Shama Sawant only takes $40,000 over $117,000 a year salary. Ada Kolu did something similar in Barcelona. I believe that is the future for well-meaning, serious people and leaders who want to earn trust and claim to be decent people. I'm very curious what you might say to this. I don't know. I had a conversation with um, Nathan Robinson years ago when I was still an anonymous attorney um, writing occasionally for current affairs because he had written an article about a maximum moral salary. And in this article, he had something like $40,000 a year or whatever salary he was being, you know, earning at the time through current affairs was sufficient, at least for him in New Orleans. And I was like, eh, I don't know. <laughs> I, I believe there's probably a moral maximum salary. I don't know if I would set it where you're setting it, Nathan. Um, and this question of whether or not it should fall on individual politicians to suppress their wages for the sake of having, um, credibility. I think that you do definitely do earn credibility, whether that's necessary or not. I don't know that I would entirely agree when we had our episode with Richard Wolf that you're referencing uh, where we talked about the Hassan Piker house scandal stuff, you know, I think what we agreed to as a panel was that I think it can be a red flag if someone earns a lot of money and then you have to just 
scrutinized to see if their values change or shift in accordance with the fact that now they're in a different income bracket. And it is, you know, kind of a rebuttable presumption that they're going to be corrupted and you just got to keep one eye open on them. Um, And I think it's also sometimes, you know, people, someone earning $40,000 a year whose husband earns $200,000 a year and they're living, you know, they're not quite taking the hit that it might appear from the outside. And there's all kinds of things that go into these equations. People have debts, people have families they support, people live in different zip codes. You know, at a high level, I think it's definitely true, but mostly we're not talking about Bezos's. We're talking about someone who makes 50000 versus 100000 versus $150,000, all of which is all squarely in like the 90%, you know? So I don't know. I'd be interested to know what you guys have to say about that. Let's hear from Jonathan. You're up next. Unmute yourself and let me know what's on your mind. Hi, Bree. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, my question for you today is twofold. The first part being related to um, Senator Nina Turner's interview on breaking points this morning. Not sure if you had a chance to see it, but I haven't actually. How was it? Should we listen to it? What's going on? How long is it? It's um, I believe it's a little over 10 minutes. So I don't know if you want to play the whole thing here, but the part of it that um kind of surprised me was when she mentioned that there's talk around town that um, Biden might face a primary challenger to his right, which is something that I hadn't really thought of the possibility of. Mm. I've just been spending all my time thinking about a left flank challenger like um, Senator Turner or Shama Sawand or Marion Williamson. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you were someone who was working for a left flank challenger to Biden and doing strategy for them. How do you think you would approach like um, a debate uh, framework for that candidate to really make themselves stand out and um, get their message out to the American people? How to make a left challenger stand out against two right wing challengers? (laughs) (laughs) I guess maybe not stand out, just like really um, present their case cogently to get people to consider voting for them against the incumbent, whether it be Biden or whatever, you know, corporatist successor ends up running I'm in. Having a hard time, I'm having a hard time imagining the appeal of someone to Biden's right. I think the only reason Biden, who was the most conservative person in the Democratic race, apart from Michael Bloomberg, probably I'm having a hard, you know, he only won in my estimation because he was familiar. He was a vice president. He had name recognition. He had um, the establishment behind him. He had Jim Clyburn. um, And he was perceived as someone who could, quote, unquote, work with Republicans. Someone farther to his right, I mean, I just have a hard time imagining who that would be and how they wouldn't have, you know, how they, I feel like they would have a hard time competing with Biden, presuming that he won. If there's no Biden in the race and it's just how does the left challenger hold up against a conservative corporate Democrat, then it's the exact same as what we've been talking about this whole time with the Biden challenge, you know, with the challenger to Biden. No. Yeah, I agree with those points. The name that um, Senator Turner floated was Kirsten Cinema, which I actually had to restrain my laughter a little bit when I heard that because picturing uh, her on a stage with Biden debating, I, that would, that would make for some pretty entertaining television, but Uh, The second part of more substantive portion of my question was if you were um, in the shoes of a left wing challenger to Biden, but you were unable to secure the Democratic nomination, what do you think your end game would be from there? Would you uh, threaten the third party run or would you 
um, withhold your endorsement unless certain policy provisions were added to the platform? Like, what do you think your uh, ask would be? I think those things go in tandem, right? You, you know, you threaten to, th- I mean, look, do you, for one, do you think you can win as a third party? If you think you can win at all, even a 20% chance, you should go ahead and do it. But if you're in the mindset of, oh, Donald Trump is running and it's fascism and all the things, then maybe you do start with a credible threat of, I will endorse you until X, Y, and Z are going to be met. And I won't, not only will I not endorse you, I will go ahead and run unless X, Y, and Z are going to be met. I think that's probably right. I don't know why you keep trying to put me in the strategist position. I have no interest in taking the set. And you got a job like that and I'm getting hives even thinking about having to work for another campaign but i appreciate your question jonathan for sure thank you Bree. thank you all right uh dave's going to be up next in the chat but first thing i'm going to read this comment from uh talia if dim select a nom that we're 100 sure we'll lose to the republicans then we should all go in on a third party yang was talking about not selecting the forward party nom until the dims do thanks for that talia. i think she's you know referencing the fact that um the forward party debate, you know, when he was having that talk with Marianne Williamson that was released today, there was a conversation about whether the forward party debates would happen after the Democratic primary. So it was kind of a reset and people could recalibrate their options. Um, let's see. Uh, Carmelo Tringali, thank you, says, have you ever thought of interviewing Gloria Leriva of PSL? They've been building their party through being active in, in like every street action, at least in my area, seems to be doing good work. Thank you for that suggestion. Always looking for good producer notes because I am my own producer. And one more question from the Bad Faith patron. Karen C., questions for Bree. Marianne also appeared on Andrew Yang yesterday to discuss the possibility of the forward parties. Primary slash convention could be intentionally, oh, here we go, <laughs> could be intentionally scheduled after the Democratic convention and primary with the idea that any left person who runs as a Democrat and is treated poorly during that primary Run could still join the forward party and run there. Do you have thoughts about the pros and cons of this? I like it. Um, two, will you ever do an episode with Trevor from Champagne Sharks discussing season two of Love Life? Or did you already do one and I missed it? We're literally DMing about doing it right now. I don't know if it's going to happen on Bad Faith or The Debrief or on Champagne Sharks, but it's definitely going to happen. Um, Addie from the Patreon says, I have some unformed thought in my head about how internet culture has made it very hard for people to change. And this might be making it harder for people to consider going well outside the box and supporting a third party. I don't know. Something about Twitter making it feel like everyone has these takes that are trapped in amber and you'll have to explain them for the rest of your life. Like I said, uninformed. But it's something that I thought about when I, like Carol, have wondered why nothing in terms of organization seems to be happening on the left. People afraid to go out on a limb because if it feels they're attached to it forever and roasted for it 24-7 in perpetuity. And then that's right. I think there's a culture of weird shame and like leftists really not wanting to look like losers, which I think is really, I'm sorry, psychologically it's very small. Like, like. Get get a backbone, have some self-esteem. Don't go ri- crying in a closet just because someone said, oh, I made fun of you over force the vote. Like, grow up. <laughs> grow up and stop stop letting yourself be bullied by a bunch of neckbeards in Brooklyn. I'm sorry, that wasn't, that wasn't kind. But the, the point is that, like, everyone is weirdly invested in being cool and, like, edgy in this left space. And it's ridiculous. Like, it's ridiculous. It's not high school. All of you guys are almost 40. Like, grow up. Okay. Um, let's take a question from Day. How you doing, Day? Get me back on track. <laughs> Day, I can't hear you for some reason. 
you're unmuted, but I'm not, I'm not hearing you at all. That's so weird. I don't, I don't hear you. Um, if you leave and come back, I'll bring you from the back of the queue. Because, you know, I always like to talk to you, Day. Um, but I'm going to go ahead and move on in the interest of not having dead airtime to Tucker. Uh, Tucker, what's on your mind? Hey, Bree, can you hear me? Yes, I can. What's what's up? <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I was really just uh, wanting to call in to give my opinion on, like, if Marianne Williamson does run, what she could possibly do to stand a chance in the primaries if she does choose to run as a Democrat. Mm-hmm. What she needs to do is go, each state has, each quarter they are required to have a monthly meeting, the, the whole, entire state party. She needs to go attend as many as she can, as often as she can, until, like, if she does decide to run, because that will get her involved in state parties, because that's actually how you do it. If you don't have any party support, you ain't going to get anywhere. That's what happened with Bernie. He didn't have any institutionalized support. He lost. And you you know that because you worked on the campaign. Do, like, you, think, if he's, do you think that her showing up would be enough? Do you think that people would be receptive to her message? I think they would be receptive to her message, whether or not uh, they would change their vote is a different story, which is why I believe that progressives really need to get involved in their local parties so they can start to change the Democratic Party to actually lay the foundation so a Marianne Williamson can run and can win and get the nomination. Well, thank you for that, Tucker. Maybe she'll be listening and tuning in and take that advice. And I also wanted to say, if you want to make change, not you particularly, Marie, but anyone listening, get involved in your local Democratic Party. Usually it's the third week of the month. It's happening this week. Hmm. Check to see when it's happening. Get involved. You can make change. Thanks Get involved how? Can you say just a little bit more about that <laughs> specifically? Well, basically, all you have to do is just see. Sorry, there's a truck driving by. But basically, all you have to do is see when your party or county party is having their meeting and just go attend. Like, for instance, my county meeting is tomorrow at 530 to 630. All you have to do is go and show up. Like, it's just one day a month for about an hour. And how do you find out information about uh, the scheduling of your local party meeting? Uh, most. Like if I, what am I Googling not, right now? Okay, basically, uh, what county do you live in uh, and state? And then just type <laughs> in Democratic Party. <laughs> the only thing is, like, All right. with, like, D.C., L.A. County, like, the big ones, yeah. that's a little different because most counties are small, like, 50, 60 people show up mm-hmm. per meeting. So progressives can take over like the small counties and make a big change like progressives did in uh i think it was nevada when dsa took over mm. all right and well, thank you sorry go ahead i didn't mean to interrupt and like i just wanted uh like it is possible for progressives to take over the democratic party it's just the fact that we need to actually get involved like i don't want to say oh she's hurting everyone into the democratic party because like i am a third party like at heart like that's what I like. I vote for Jill Stein every single election, like even if she was running for dog catcher. I just want to say, like, if we actually want to push the Democratic Party instead of like having them be more and more conservative, like, heck, uh, I think it was uh, today or yesterday or something like that. Joe Biden's uh, approval rating was 33 percent, which is yeah, the same well. as Trump's. 
Yeah. Like, it's ridiculous. Well, look, Tucker, I'm, I'm, I'm reading the chat, and someone named D, uh, DG Daniel says, yeah, been involved in the local party. They have zero power on the national level. I'm not sure where he's from. Maslow, Maslow uh, Pavlov says, do not listen to this. Dems are corrupt like reps. Repeat, repeat, repeat. Thanks for the call, Hillary. That's a little mean-spirited. Ignore that, uh, Tucker. But there's, look, are you hearing that? There's a lot of people who just are over it. No, trust me. And like I was exactly them like just a few years ago until I got actually involved in the Democratic Party and saw it's a ghost show. We can take it over. It's just the fact that people are done with it. They just don't want to. So all these old boomers can do whatever the hell they want with the party. Like I know this because like like even though like I was involved in the Democratic Party of Arkansas, like that's a small state. Mm -hmm. I still know how like each party runs. Like, I still know, like, the inner workings of each party and know that it's just a shell. Like, we can take it over. It's just the fact that progressives would rather go an alternate route, like third party, DSA, like, outside of the mainstream, because, quite frankly, the Democratic Party establishment hates us, like, hates progressives. They'd rather court, like, Mitt Romney-esque Republicans right. to vote for shake, Democrats and shake, stuff. Shake, uh, uh, what's his face, um, Cheney's hand and all that jazz. All right. Yeah. I hear you. It's a tough sell. You're going to have to convince the chat, <laughs> but I appreciate, I always appreciate your concrete on the ground observations, and like, Tucker. And like, I don't want to like make it seem like that's the only option. Or no, I, I think that there's an inside outside Democrat strategy that a lot of people support. Right. Because I appreciate that. Tucker. Open for everyone. I'm a registered green party member and like you can do it. It's just the fact that we need to actually do it so we can lay the foundations for a Bernie Sanders, because if we would have done this, Bernie Sanders would have probably won. It's just Thank the fact you. that maybe 30 percent are progressives in each state. We just don't get involved. But Thank you for I that, Tucker. Say, so I appreciate you. it. Thank you, as always, for calling in. Let's see if we can get a day to work this time, pulling in from the back of the queue. Unmute yourself, okay. Day. There you can go. Can you hear me? Yes. I can hear you. What's oh. on your mind? Okay, you know this was like the episode that made me grin from ear to ear, and she was on <laughs> Yang, so I was like, whoa, a double whammy. So I'll try to get to it quick. Okay, so the part about the episode. Day? Oh, no, you cut out again. Oh, can you hear me now? I can hear you now. Okay, sorry, someone was trying to call me. Day? You better, you better tell them to call you back later. I can't hear you. Day? All right, Day, I'm going to have to kick you off again, and I'll bring you back up if I see you poke your head up, but I can't hear anything, so I'm going to have to go on. Uh, Amos, you're up. Unmute yourself. What's on your mind? Hi. Um, yeah, thanks for taking my call. Um, full disclosure, I'm a, I'm a friend of Anna, who you were talking to earlier. But no need to disclose. We're all friends here. This is the new community, Sweet. right? There's there's no yeah. church, just the debrief. <laughs> yeah, we, we don't. Yeah, not a church yet. Um. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I wanted to weigh in with some of like just some thoughts about the questions about you know presidential third party inside outside strategy, um, and I really find like myself agreeing with Kashama and Chris Hedges, but like wishing that they outlined some next steps, which you kept on pushing them on. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's turned into a frustrating circle. Mm -hmm. um, and 
to me, like if I was going to jump out there and be like, all right, what are these next steps to actually take a stab at that answer? I agree with them that I think the Democratic Party just torpedoes any real um, serious left challenger um, at some point. Uh, but I still think that it's worth doing because, you know, the bump, the energy, the shift in the conversation that, you know, Bernie basically proved it twice. Um, and uh, I think you don't go yeah. in sort of as, as like as Adolf Reed talked about, like you, like you don't go in um, thinking that you're going to lose. You sort of like fool yourself <laughs> um, yeah. and, and make the best possible run of it. Um, but then I'm also like, you know, like like the meme girl, like why not both for the inside outside strategy and that it doesn't you know have to be the same person just because like. You know, there's months separating the primaries and the general um, and, you know, everybody can step over to a third party, um, you know, after whoever it is, uh, you know, gets. Yeah. So the, so the question, Amos, is what well, what yeah. does it look like next? And I just want to clarify about that episode with Shama and Chris uh, Hedges. People in the comments were saying things like Brianna is committed to an inside strategy. She has to do I literally don't know. I don't know. And I'm not invested in someone running as a Democrat and then switching to third party or someone running as a third party. I have no investment. But what I asked the guests, what I asked was, should the left participate in the 22 and 2024 elections? The answer was absolutely yes. Do not sit that out. So my follow-up question is, how should the left participate? And the answer to that cannot be every idea is bad. (laughs) You have to say something affirmative that's electoral. I'm not invested in electoralism, but you just told us that you agree with me that it is irresponsible to let these electoral moments pass without exploiting them to the best interests of the left. So how do we do that? And that is, yes, an electoral conversation because we're talking about an upcoming election. But you could also just say, I don't think we should invest in electoral politics. We should completely divest and all the left should sit them out, in which case I might disagree with you, but that's a cogent worldview. But my argument, the circular nature wasn't coming from me trying to push one agenda or another. It was just to get some oh, yeah. commitment as to what a strategy looks like. Because even if you think electoral politics is a losing game and a failure, it's not how the revolution is going to come and all this stuff, both – both guests acknowledge that Bernie's run, to your point, Amos, yeah. uh, helped to galvanize so many people. So the answer is, do we then run a candidate? And so then I want to talk through with them and others what the advantages are running inside and outside. People like Ralph Nader, people who have run as Green Party candidates, talk about the structural barriers to doing so. And if realistically they think that they could run a Green Party, you know, they could run, uh, you know, an outsider candidate on a Democratic Party line or or whatever. But, you know, I, I don't have any additional answers here. I don't know. I'm not that person. I'm not a member of any of those parties. And we're going to have guests on shortly that are from MPP, from Green and from Forward to talk through what those real structural barriers are. But that should be the starting point of the conversation. We all agree that we should not just sit out midterms or sit out 2024. And we should be trying right now to position ourselves the best way possible. Right, right. I mean, I think to me, the crucial point in there is just that, like, I don't want folks on the left to be like too cool for jumping on board basically with both to like 
all right, we're going to support the inside candidate basically until they inevitably get snaked. And then right. we're going to turn around and support a third party because we need to build a basis for a challenge to the duopoly. Right. Um, even though I, I don't see a third party winning um, in you know 2024, but you need to plant the seeds. Also, let's let's just put out in the in the energy the energy in the world. We don't all have to caveat, and I'm saying this to myself too, not just to you, Amos. We don't have to caveat. Oh, I don't think that they're going to actually win because that's big loser energy, and that's what you say when you don't want one of the you know Brooklyn podcast elites to sneer at you for being overly positive or optimistic or sanguine or something. We all know what the odds are. Right. And I said this to Shama and Chris as well. Like, I, I, I understand it's going to be hard. No one has to ever say again, organizing is hard. Organizing needs to be prioritized. It's an uphill battle. Third parties have never won. Let's all just grant that we're on the same page there and like cut to the chase. Because also, I think that, you know, to like pull a line from my friend Marion Williamson here, we are like manifesting some stuff that we don't need to be manifesting. We all know it's hard. And I wouldn't tell a child every time they're going to take a math test, this is going to be really hard, mm-hmm. but let's try. No, that's ridiculous. You know? So mm-hmm. I appreciate you calling in Amos. I'm going to read a couple of these questions off the screen before I lose track of them. Um, Tony okay. Dallas. Thank you. thank you. Thank you, Amos. Tony Dallas says, hi, Brie, love the show. Electoral fusion as a third party tactic was banned in the 1890s. What about ballot initiatives for reversing that rule? I actually don't know what that is. So if someone wants to write in or call in and explain um, Hink highlight says, thank you for your contribution. Hink says Bernie Sanders likely would have disappointed like he disappointed at the end of the primary and everything after I think every politician, every person in your life, let me tell you, as I swipe through these apps, every person disappoints you on some level, but that's, that's what it means to have expectations and we'd be nowhere without setting some kind of bar without having some kind of litmus test. So better to have loved and lost, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Dog Maine, thank you for your contribution. Third party is a stupid waste of time. Forget about it. Invade and infiltrate the Dems. Be strong and fight conservatism and austerity. I hear you, dog. Reasonable minds disagree. Uh, Hoodwinked, thank you for your contribution, says Governor Rick Snyder. Proved that ballot initiatives don't matter. Michigan voters banned emergency managers via ballot, and he continued to do it anyway. I don't know that that's the same as saying they don't matter, um, but I appreciate having some skepticism about um, uh, their vulnerability. Day, sorry, I see that you gave up on um, the chat maybe and pivoted to YouTube. Can you bring me back, please? You know I love Marianne. I really want to discuss. Okay, Day, here we go. Uh, You're up next. Unmute yourself. Let's see if we can make okay. it work this time. Lord, please just work. <laughs> some of this good. Maybe I need some crystals. I don't know. Someone call. I didn't know calling in the middle of talking. It knocks you. Your might mute. And I was just talking away until I realized you were on the next caller. And I was like, ah. <laughs> <sighs> okay. it's okay. We made it. Let's let's get to it before some other disaster strikes. Yes. Okay. So the part about the cacophony of modern politics is really interesting to me. Mm -hmm. Because I do believe Bernie and Trump were able to be quiet long enough to hear the true cry of help from the people who were hurting. Now, while they did do that, you know, while what they did with that pain differed, it shows the validity to the practice. Because I think when you're so, another way of saying it is when you're so blind or immersed in the tastemakers, you miss, I think Marianne said it on Breaking Points, you miss the people 
the homeless people or you miss the people suffering as you walk down the streets of DC mm-hmm. just because you had that tunnel vision. But what I I had a whole other thing to talk about, but someone brought up the church versus state argument and they mm-hmm. brought up will her spirituality be a hindrance. So I want to address those two things. I feel like I'm the only person so far who wants to kind of wrestle with that. Sure. So for the church versus state argument, church versus state is it isn't to say that spirituality has no place in the conversation. It's simply to state that the church can't come in and say you can or can't pass said law due to their religious authority. And I think sometimes that gets lost as if like there's no room for spirituality to be in political conversations because of that. So I always like to make that distinction. Mm -hmm. I think the fact that Marianne works through transformational terms is actually a help given the changes we need go beyond just policy. Mm -hmm. It requires like a holistic political approach that addresses the psychological and emotional impact of policy change. Mm -hmm. People aren't just some, you know, some beings, some reasonable, logical beings who operate only from a place of reason and logic, which is why her point on Yang's podcast about how bad economic policy feels like a mental and emotional shackle Mm. on many people and how that then bleeds into their behaviors and how it hurts their health, given how stress impacts the body. Mm -hmm. So to your earlier point, like no spiritual teaching gives us an excuse to ignore human suffering. And so for me, it's like, if somebody believes that it does, it's a clear sign for me to have a lot of questions for that person. Mm. Um, and I'm going to wrap this person up so we can, like, you can talk and speak. But, but Marianne, this is one thing that I tried to stress to people. There are different leadership styles. And yeah. I always say Marianne is a visionary leadership style. And so for so long, we have praised a technocratic type leader mm. that I think like her spirituality gives her a lens to which she can find moral ground on which to align our collective behavior, AKA politics. Like Marianne isn't just spiritual. She has a strong understanding of politics and how to weave the two. And -hmm. I think that's the part that people forget. They just say, well, she's just spiritual. I'm like, no, she's actually learned on politics. And I think your question to, can she speak to the right is important because I, I personally believe that Marianne can speak with some of the evangelical right and can neutralize some of the fervent hardcore zealots because she has a vast understanding of the spiritual world and doctrine mm-hmm. and can rightfully critique the pseudo-spiritual framing that dominates on the right. Mm-hmm. You can't just quote a scripture and play her because mm-hmm. she has a thorough understanding of many world religions and sees the through line that connects them all. So mm-hmm. I feel like many weaponizers of religion on the right create a false image of God that conveniently hates all the same people that they do, which mm-hmm. permits a reading of the scripture that con- conveniently confirms their biases. That makes it easy to convince people of harmful policies under the guise of God's work, despite being divorced from the true principles of the God. If they believe that God is indeed love, is indeed is God is love, is actually a thing, then you have to actually reflect that in your politics. Look, I'm with you. I'm ready to sign up. Where's the day campaign? Are you going to run? You throwing your hat in the ring for 2024? I'm not even bullcrap. I mean, people say that that makes me like cringe because I'm like, I don't know if I can do that. But if Marianne wants people on the time team because I actually have ideas for that, listen, tell her to call me. Let's come back. I would would strongly recommend. Look, I always appreciate your insight. I think you're right. To your, your first point about, you know, visionary leaders, I do think that there is a healthy skepticism from some folks about the idea of a solely visionary leader because Mm -hmm. of how we got played by Obama. 
And there was this idea that he said the right thing. I remember literally saying to someone in like 20, 2008, you know, because there was all this debate about whether or not he had enough experience. That was how Hillary was trying to get him, right? Like he ha- didn't have the experience. He didn't have mm-hmm. a record. And I remember having this argument with friends and saying, like, what I want in a politician, first and foremost, is someone who I believe is going to make good judgments in the moment, who shares my kind of ethics and beliefs and when can present it with facts, many of which are going to be outside of my purview, because I'm not reading the, you know, the top secret file or whatever, that they're (laughs) going to do the right thing because I trust their values, judgment, ethics and things like that. And. I, that was a misplaced faith that I had in 2008 in Obama's values, ethics, judgments, and I think a lack of understanding about the structural forces at play. And when it came to Bernie Sanders, I had a lot more faith in his values, ethics, et cetera. And who knows if I would have been disappointed to the previous caller's point or whether those would have borne out. I think his record and his career speaks to his commitments much more so than someone like Barack Obama. So I'm much more confident in somebody like Bernie Sanders, despite Yes, the ways in which maybe he's disappointed as of late. But I truly do. I mean, as someone who was really raised fully agnostic, like mm-hmm. neither of my parents are religious. My mother wasn't raised religious. Like there is just no religion anywhere <laughs> in my space. I, it feels like a warm hug. You know, I said on the last call in that I hadn't scheduled uh, Monday's interview yet. And I just wanted to talk to someone who was like nice to me. <laughs> <laughs> and went and fight with me and make me feel like I had to tear my hair out and feel alone and isolated in the world. And after that call in episode, I was like, oh, I should just call Marianne, see if Marianne will let me interview her for Monday's episode. And obviously she said yes. But I feel like I'm individually feeling like I need some Marianne in my life and that maybe I'm not the only one in America who, whether or not she runs for president or it's just through her general spiritual practice, is really looking for like compassion. And just willingness to understand and listen and to kind of be able to have a discussion where you presume the best, where you have a good faith talk with somebody. And, and that's the part that I think, oh, I'm so sorry. No, go ahead. Please go ahead. No, it's like, I think that's the part that so many of us that are on the left, the online left, et cetera, and like the broest part of the left miss that most people aren't looking for politics that make them feel hateful and resentful. They really want to feel inspired, but we have been conditioned to believe that politics in and of itself has to be this toxic, hateful space. But the reason that it's become that is because a lot of the people with the spiritual, the more enlightened views have decided to divorce themselves from that space, therefore leaving nothing but toxicity. Because look in the in the business community, we're starting to see holistic things. Look at in health and medicine, and we're starting to see how as a society, we think differently, except for when it comes to politics. And so I think it's very important that we realize that until we decide to inject some love, which makes people go, oh, woo, woo, blah, 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 which it shouldn't, <laughs> like, until we inject that in there, it's going to consistently be the space that it is. And I'm like, that's draining for me. Like, I wouldn't want to do something that's that negative, but I'm learning because I'm a conflict-aversive person. I'm learning that if I want the change, I have to be willing to confront it, you know? Yeah, it's hard. I mean, I wouldn't wish any of this uh, lifestyle on any. I mean, I go back and forth, right? I feel enormously grateful to be able to kind of do what I like for a living. Um, Because God knows when I was a lawyer, I was also spending all day on Twitter and then having to stay at the firm all night to make some billable hours. So it's nice to be able to do that, obviously. (laughs) But it also is, I don't know, it's taxing in a way that it doesn't have to be because there's so many allies that we're fighting with on the left on a daily basis 
And I just wish that weren't the case. And, you know, I've tweeted this before, but every day I wake up and somebody on the left says something that I disagree with every single day. And you can just choose to not tweet about it. (laughs) Like not something substantive, you know, just like, oh, I didn't like, you know, so-and-so's take. It's like, I know that me and -and so-and-so are together on 99% of things. And I can privately talk to them about that take or I could just let it go and like focus on what the goals are. And I'm guilty of not always doing that. I'm not saying that I'm holier than thou. I'm thinking to myself right now, there are some people who I should probably extend an olive branch to and try to have healing with. <laughs> and that's on me. Do and as, as soon as maybe the weather gets a little better and I am running outside and my mental health is a little bit better, <laughs> I will definitely do that. But just like, give me till March. <laughs> we, need, we need that solidarity for 24 because trust me, they like us divided. But I want to address one thing you said about sure. Obama because I agreed with you. Mm-hmm. But I personally like to think that the true sign of a visionary leader is who they surround themselves with. Mm-hmm. And I think it was clear when Obama came in that his vision was not supported by substance. Oh, Larry Summers isn't your guy? Absolutely. <laughs> I almost did the Megan Stallion. Absolutely effing not. Like, <laughs> Obama was what he was to me was he, he understood his skill mm-hmm. was his ability, his rhetorical presence. And I think mm-hmm. his ability to be an order. Mm-hmm. Order. I don't know if you said that right. If I said mm-hmm. that right. But... I think it was similar to Kamala, no disrespect to the black people because I'm black. Um, it's fine. I think they understood. We're all black. Okay, great. <laughs> we're good. Okay. Um, because, you know, they're trying to cancel us. I think that <laughs> they both were all in it for themselves and their personal grandizement. And I said, yeah. at the end of the day, people like Marion and Bernie, because I always say what Bernie was missing was one, I think, he spoke on the secular level very well, but I think he was missing a more spiritual element. That's my personal critique. Mm-hmm. And I also think that the the grit to go all the way in the similar vein as Trump. I think mm. Marianne has now figured out a way to weave the more traditionalist Democrats mm. with people who feel disaffected mm. as well as a right wing. And I think if with the right strategy and communications department, I'm not in this camp of, oh, just run to lose and it makes it better. Mm-hmm. That's a waste of time. And that's actually demoralizing. I mean, hello, Bernie, 2020 mm-hmm. and 2016. Mm-hmm. We're going to win. Like at the end of the day, if we're not running to win, don't run. Yes. That's yes. Yes. I'm hype. I'm ready. Like you've got me ready to go. I'm feeling that like manifest it. Correct. Period. I, I, I'm I'm so with it. I want to read you this comment while you're still on. Cup of Joy writes, I love this day guy. Incredibly thoughtful, introspective, and uses clear critical thinking skills lacking in the dogma of either of the political parties. Please run for something. Y'all are too kind. Bless you. Listen, only if Brie, to, listen, only if Brie was on my team. And she doesn't want to be pop. She doesn't want to be shabby. So, no. I, I, I'm definitely willing to be an advisor, spiritual and otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, as always, for calling in, Day. I really appreciate it. No, thank you. You have a blessed night. You too. All right. Before I go to Elijah, I'm going to say thank you to uh, Demas Rex for the contribution. And I'm also going to read this comment from Thomas, who says, do you think that the left should focus on leadership development instead of waiting for the next charismatic leader to come along instead of waiting for the next Fred Hampton? What are we doing to create future Fred Hamptons? This is a really important point. I think that Chris Hedges talked about uh, the first time he came on the podcast. It's still one of the our most viewed videos. So if you just go down, you can watch it. It's in the front of the page because it's, I think, the second most viewed after the Sam Cedar debate. Um, and he talks about how he thinks the next Fred Hampton, Hampton is in one of the teach- classes he teaches in prison. Um, and that there, I mean, that's 
that really stops you in your tracks, right? Because it makes you Sorry about that. I hope that didn't interrupt the stream. Uh, there's all these structural barriers um, to the people who have had the life experiences that are likely to drive them to be sparks of revolutionary change have two running for office. They're not able to self-fund. They're not able to have um, sometimes the right to vote uh, and what that means systemically. I think that Republicans understood the power, the radicalizing power of college and made it very – are trying very hard to make it difficult for people to go. I think it's very ironic that Democrats seem to be lockstep in that agenda. Um, I think that precarity, generally speaking, minimizes people's ability to participate in the political process, obviously, and so that's not helping. I think the Democratic Party has not tried to foster leaders at all, which is why we have people who are Bernie's age and – Joe Biden's age and, um, you know, Chuck Schumer is like on the younger side even in his 70s. And then we have like Cori Bush and AOC. And there's no like 50 year olds, you know, name a 45 year old senator. Like I'm really struggling, <laughs> you know. So there has been a choice in the Democratic Party not to foster talent the way they have in the Republicans. I mean, there's Ted Cruz's and Marco Rubio's and all kinds of folks in that mid-tier age range where on the left, it's like Cory Booker, like uh, Julian Castro, I guess. There's like two Gen Xers that I can think of that are at all at play. Um, and it's a problem. It's a problem. Uh, I want to read another question from patrons if that's okay, because I'm going to switch from I'm gonna end the live stream soon and just stay on Colin. Uh, so we can have a little bit of our intimacy. But first, Cameron uh, Tarara says, hi, Brie, please ask uh, MAW if she were to run as a Dem in 24 and things go in the direction of Joe Biden, will she endorse campaign for him or fight from the left? Thank you. Uh, good question for if she's back on the pod. Tucker Millet, uh, thank you for supporting us. Andrew, user, uh, Android users, comrade, LOL. I think that was a Tucker who called in earlier. Um, no problem, Tucker. Ronnie Graham, I downloaded Colin and it does not accept my phone number. Okay, that's not necessary to read. All right. Okay. Let's hear from Elijah. What's on your mind, Elijah? Unmute yourself with the mic button in the bottom right-hand corner of the screen. Thank there you. you Hi. Hi. How you doing? What's on your mind? I'm good, thanks. Um, I wanted to talk about Marianne Williamson because I was a supporter of hers in 2020 mm -hmm. and also Bernie. Uh, and I initially voted for Bernie because I just felt that's where the energy was. But I thought uh, Marianne had more progressive policies when whenever you really looked at them and compared mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. And also I felt with Bernie in 2016, he really had this fire that you know, it spoke to me. And I felt that whenever I would listen to Marianne in 2020, I would listen to all her speeches. And I saw her a lot of times, you know, whenever she would come to LA. And um, also, I would listen to her interviews. And although I didn't always agree with some things, she would shift on the things that I didn't agree on, like Medicare for all. I remember mm -hmm. there were so many people posing as progressives in 2020 that weren't really progressive they just knew that they had to squash bernie that way so they all said well we're for medicare for all uh you know a, an option 
And I heard that Marianne, she said that to Jimmy Dore, and then she originally switched it later on uh, because she was informed about how that would gunk up the system. And Mm. she knew that that was a talking point. Mm. And with Julian Assange, whenever she educated herself about what was going on there, she was Mm. for him. And with Afghanistan, you know, she had some mixed feelings about the war, but whenever she found out what was really going on there, she was Mm. against the war. And with Taiwan, I recently heard her talking about how she knows that uh, she was being informed how there's talking points about Taiwan and how uh, the airspace we were flying into was actually a space that the U.S. government set up. Uh, And, you know, to address one of the callers earlier, spiritual movements were the leaders of a lot of social change in this country with abolition, women's suffrage, civil rights. And whenever I met Marianne, I told her, Bernie got me into politics, but you made me proud to be an American. You made me realize that we're so not attached to these these things we stand for as a country. You know, it really awoken something in me that made me want to get involved. Mm-hmm. And and I, I hear her calling out the squad now, you know, and that's something she also wasn't doing prior. But mm. she recently said that the squad were all these people that are in the squad were not around elite power before in their lives. Mm-hmm. And I think something powerful we should see about Marianne is not only that she does evolve to the right side because of her spirituality, it's also why she's a progressive, you know, and because she's been in these elite circles before. She's not gonna she's not gonna be so vulnerable to these forces that members of the squad were. Yeah, I like the argument. I mean, of course time will tell and everyone should have healthy skepticism and all that stuff, mm-hmm. the crocodile shoe comment and all that from earlier. But I I like the argument and I think I I trust someone who's willing to address, admit their mistakes and kind of course correct much more than someone who just claims to be right and righteous all the time. Um, Cause mm-hmm. none of us are going to be right. You know, a lot of people are mad about some of the mistakes AOC made early on talking about Israel and Palestine. I mean, but the, if people are willing to course correct, you know, I, I have personally had, you know, disagreements and, you know, conversations with Marianne about, you know, we happened to have been hanging out that day. It was my birthday. <laughs> um, the day that, you know, the tweet, the Afghanistan tweet, you know, went viral and all that stuff. Yes. And we, 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 we discussed it, you know, I obviously don't want to disclose, you know, but we discussed it and we disagree about things. But I really appreciate about her that unlike a lot of folks, she is willing to have that good faith conversation and not write you off as a human being because you're on a different side of an issue, an issue that she cares very deeply about, you know? And, and I will say this also, I enjoyed my conversation with um, Megan Kelly today. You know, I, you know, she's someone who does not believe there should be a $50 minimum wage. We are far <laughs> apart on many issues, but it, there was something incredibly refreshing about being able to just talk openly with someone who owns their values and who I didn't feel like was going to cancel me for having a different opinion. You know, mm-hmm. I, I don't know what to I don't know what to say about that. Like it it kind of sucks that those kind of conversations are so rare that it feels refreshing to have them in that kind of a context. But I'll say this about Marianne. I trust her ability to get through to people and talk to people in part because she has spent 
decades talking to people who are very ideologically disparate, but who are coming together around some kind of spiritual core. And so she's, she's used to it. You know, she, you heard her talk on the podcast about what it was like for her on the campaign trail and how she was able to flip rooms and people were so responsive to her and Matt Taibbi and others who have observed her who are to have some kind of clinical distance from her so that they observe the same things and were like pleasantly surprised by how well she played in Peoria, you know? Mm-hmm. So I I'm with you. I, I agree. And I appreciate your, your comments, Elijah. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for taking my call. Of course. Thank you for calling in and, and supporting the show. Of course. I'm a bad faith family member. Well, thank you for that as well. I, I, patrons, if you're listening, go ahead and drop a comment in the patron chat and I will prioritize it. I got to, I got to support, support the faithful, but thank you so much, Elijah. I appreciate it. Of course. Thank you. All right. I'm going to read this comment off the screen from Zayden. Thank you, Zayden, who says the situation is ripe for a socialist agenda, but we don't have the resources and institutions to exploit it. The task is to build socialist politics so that in 2024 and 2026, we can get serious wins. I hear that Zayden. Um, I'm refreshing the patron clip and I think, I'm hearing people say ooh, a lot of new comments. My bad. My bad. I've been neglecting this. Um, Ronnie Graham says, I watched your interview with Megan today and derided her comment saying employees of small businesses will be fine with a nine to $10 an hour because if they paid more, these businesses would hire less people. I would say if you run a business and can only make a profit, if you pay poverty wages, you need to go out of business and get a job. You know, Bernie famous who said this during a town hall and it was an extremely based moment. <laughs> um, Chris, Paulus says, I love that conversation with Shama and Chris. Andrew Powell says, my question is, let's say Marianne wins. How does she get anything comprehensive done for working class? If literally it seems like everyone in the House and the Senate are corporate shills, then the answer to that is executive orders, executive orders, and use the pulpit to apply pressure in a way that obviously Joe Biden isn't doing. But we hoped that Bernie Sanders would do. He, she could immediately ex- use the executive authority to extend Medicare for all in this pandemic. And that alone would be quite a significant move. Caleb says, do you think it will ever be possible for the left to hold some kind of quote summit between all of the many left parties? It seems like there is another lefty group seeking to form a third party every six months. The parties I know of share many of the same goals. But the only universal position between all of these groups seems to be that all of the other groups are useless. How can the left ever hope to gain real traction when their supporters are spread across dozens of similar groups? I'm with you, Caleb, and that's part of why I'm trying to get together a panel of a green person, a forward person, and an MVP person um, to talk this exact thing through. I'm 100% with you. One more from the Patreon before I go back to callers. Um, Alex Fleming. Oh, not a question, so I'm going to skip it. Stony Blue. See how the view attacked Marianne in 2019 pre-COVID. It will be big. It will be as effective. Sorry. It will be big as effective treatments since 2020 keep standing strong. Marianne presciently offers the needed response. YouTube clip. Your fab boomer 12 stepper whom has bonded with an evangelical during COVID. Tony Steed. Uh, thank you, Tony. I agree. There's going to be a lot of pushback, but that just is what it is. I don't even think we have to manif- speak that. We all know it. We all know it. It's going to be hard. Um, Sorry, last one from the patron. PG, I actually think that Marianne has a unique opportunity to speak to otherwise fringe spiritual and religious folks on both the left and the right. Obviously, I think that single issue anti-vaxxers will still not vote for her most likely, but even some of those folks will put on a big public show, but then vote for her secretly. But I think we shouldn't underestimate how important belief in something spiritual at all is 
to most U.S. voters and how much more they'll connect with the spiritualist white lady than they did with the progressive Jewish man. I mean, she's also Jewish, but I hear your point. Obvious anti-Semitism plays some role here, but I think Bernie has also created a very non-spiritual persona and I don't know him personally. Do I don't know how much that is who he is. But he never talked about God from what I heard, and Marianne has and does and will, even if her God and her Jesus are not the same as most fundy Christians are used to. Again, just I don't think this person knows that Marianne's Jewish. But as a queer who was raised Mormon and then became an atheistic paganish person with a detour in yoga land and an MLM scheme or two along the way, I can confirm that in all those spaces I have interacted with folks who will totally resonate with Marianne's humanist spirituality if they haven't already in her many books and recent debates. Um Sam Miller says, considering that only a small percentage of population, does it make sense to run a candidate as a socialist, e.g. socialist alternatives, rather than a no-label candidate with a progressive platform? That's why I like Ford, I got to say. I, something about the neutrality and the newness and the association with Yang that, like, it makes it feel like a kind of a neutral space, for better or for worse. And I understand there's vulnerabilities there because you don't know what the party is going to do or what it really is going to stand for. But – I got to say that is why there's a little bit of appeal there for it to me. Um, And Courtney T last one, I'm sorry. Are we collectively spending too much time focusing on who's going to run for president? Should we care more about getting real socialist or communist representation in Congress or locally? I've been voting since 2008 and my politics have gotten more radical with each administration. I just don't see any leftist policy achieving any meaningful gains as long as third parties continue to lack representation at all levels of government. Yeah, I think it's a both. And I really, I think people should be very, very careful not to do these Zero sum comments. If you think that people, you should be working on a local level, work on a local level. But unless you think that people should completely give up any traction, leverage, interest in national debates, which occupy so much energy and are such a potential for radicalization, then please do not present these things as either or zero sum phenomenon. That is, that is like something that's straight out. I'm not saying you're doing this on purpose, but that's something like straight out of one of those like um, how to derail a movement books to constantly bring up, oh, but should we be doing this other thing? Go ahead and do it, but stop making it a zero-sum game. It's not a zero-sum game. All right, uh, Raman, apologies if I'm not pronouncing that right. Go ahead and unmute yourself and let me know what's on your mind. Bree, can you hear me? I can hear you. Great. Um, I'm calling from Germany. Here It's 2 a.m. now. Oh, um, but <laughs> sorry totally about that. Uh, no, no, that's great. Um, I've been listening to the show for a while and I wanted to kind of bring an outside perspective in, mm. um, that I really now that they basically formulated much better than I could have ever had. Um, I think Jason and Anna also touched on that spirituality point and, um, here in Germany, we just had elections and the left wing party which kind of dates back to Eastern Germany, got under 5%, which normally would have meant that they would not get into parliament. And they only got in because of um, two or three representatives that got in directly, which is an abysmal um, um, turnout for for left-wing politics here, even though the policies are theoretically there. So when I heard the interview with Marianne, it really resonated something in me that I before um, had felt with Colonel West and Bernie, of course, Mm -hmm. which is exactly that version of um, spirituality and politics. And I would... I would definitely, um, and Bernie, of course, mm-hmm. support is exactly that merge. 
Oh, now I hear myself. I would definitely support uh, what they said that I think someone like Marianne can um, reach so many more people with her spiritual work, but also mm. just with the fluency of the way she speaks mm. and um, how she can bring across these left-wing politics to people who normally wouldn't consider themselves uh, left-wing. Mm. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And it's heartening to hear that that's also your perspective on things from the other side of the pond. It really is. And from that's, I guess, where, why from an outside perspective, I, I do focus a lot on the, those personality questions because I really feel like then there's nobody here that would have that kind of authority, spiritual authority, fluency and political radicalism mm. to change national conversation in a way that focuses on these working class issues. Like here, the left has basically become a pro-COVID measure party mm. that just supports whatever the government does and whoever even has questions about it is labeled a Nazi. Mm. Really? Um, yeah, that, basically. That hits a little different in Germany, I, I... Are people I mean, just randomly calling people Nazis all the time over COVID policy? Well, so there's this group of esoteric people, I would say, that are traditionally kind of more spiritually focused and not political. And they have started to be strongly against those COVID measures. And they go protesting, but they are joined by, by actual Nazis, actual oh. Nazis. Oh, so there's Nazis involved. Gotcha. <laughs> Jesus Christ. And, well, they are marching with them, and this that leads to that kind of, I think Glenn Greenwell talked about, that anti-vaxxer label mm. of everybody who's, who's called an anti-vaxxer is um, basically, it's conjoined with Nazis. Mm. Um, and for me in that conversation that I watch here in Germany, the whole um, area of talking about working class issues of um, also talking to people like there's a very interesting phenomenon here that also happened in the US where people that used to vote left wing switched this election to the far right. Mm. And there's literally no conversation here about how to get those voters back to the left, mm. which I think is why I listen to mostly left wing US politics uh, discussions and podcasts, because I think your work and the work of um, Breaking Point mm. um, and a few of those others is really essential and I'm really lacking that here. So it, it does give me um, hope and a kind of centering on how left-wing politics on a national level can be done differently. Mm. Um, and then people like Marianne and Bernie and Colonel West definitely uh, symbolize, I think, um, a potential for left-wing politics to to... Um, make them much more accessible and get people to vote left-wing who normally wouldn't be out of culture, war, and identity um, issues. Yeah. Well, I, I have mixed feelings about I mean, so many of us in the States, I think, for years have looked to European countries and thought, oh, they've got it so much better. <laughs> They're so much less crazy. Yeah. So I have mixed feelings about the idea that you're looking to us as some guidance about left messaging strategy because the conversation that's happening in Germany is so um, non-existent. But I am heartened and glad, obviously, that we're in this uh, community trying to figure it out together. And I appreciate you calling in. Yeah, um, that, that would lead me to a second very short question. Um, 
uh, about what you said earlier of um, kind of institutes and think tanks organizing bullet points and mm. strategies for left-wing politicians. I know that there is some here in Germany and mm. it obviously doesn't work well. What would be steps that you would see to establish something like that in the US, given that there are kind of these very young journalistic independent formats now forming with you and and Glenn and uh, Crystal and Sagar? Um, that have different funding structures. Do you do you see any possibility for a kind of radical left think tank structure to emerge, or even for you to kind of um, gather people around? Look, I'm no I'm no fundraiser, but there are people who do do that. I know that mm -hmm. there are people with access to lots of money who fundraise for you know broadly left causes, fundraise for people like Warren and all that kind of stuff. And I would argue that that money, even people who are more Warren left, maybe not entirely ideologically aligned, we have a shared interest in putting our heads together in some think tanks that are separate from the main third way network. I mm -hmm. think that people like Matt Brunig do the Lord's work and he's, you know, patron funded and that's incredible, mm -hmm. but I wow. don't know exactly how much people are able to scale up. I mean, you see even David Sirota has able to hire, been able to hire staff and start, you know, the daily poster and do amazing work, but at the scale that cap has, you know, cap takes all that money from what is it? Bahrain or Saudi Arabia or something that everyone's always mm -hmm. talking about. Like they obviously have the kind of funding where they can pay all these people, failed politicians and the like six, you know, six figure salaries to keep them in the, heard for their next run you know someone like stacy abrams loses their race and then they go work for cap you know cap is like a holding mm. pin for democrats more so than it is an actual constructive think tank i mean it's not that there's some, not some work that's being done there i don't mean to cast everybody cast aspersions on everybody but the left needs its own institutions and I, i'm not entirely sure how to go about doing that but i do think we have to look beyond a patreon fund raising yeah. um model because it needs to be bigger than that and it needs to be able to attract talent coming out of you know economics departments and sociology departments and in government or whatever the background that trains you to do these kinds of things and people who don't have that training because to be honest policy is really just people yeah. sitting around thinking about things yeah. <laughs> like it's not Absolutely it's not agree. that deep um, I used to, the policy department, I think, used to get mad at me sometimes because I'd be walking over the other side of the room like, how about this? Like, <laughs> I went to law school. I have a notion about how we could do this. And they would roll their eyes at me. But, you know, that's kind of what it is. So Yeah, but that's so important. I mean, if all the people sitting around the table have the same background in education and yeah. um, obviously then then it looks different. What, what do you see as Marianne's potential part in that because I don't know her work I literally like I I, I just um, read about her I think in the primaries uh two years ago mm -hmm. but if she knows so many millionaires and billionaires and she's mm -hmm. on good terms with them and she says that their interest in the end is actually quite similar to most people's interest wouldn't wouldn't that be kind of a door to to for her to kind of convince those people to um fund a structure like that That's an interesting question. I, you know, I know that she has an interest in, you know, supporting left media. I don't know if you saw the live stream that we did for Stephen Donzinger and then she and the crew, I was uh, out of town that day, but she and the crew did another one um, for Julian Assange a few weeks mm -hmm. later. Uh, you know, she has been, you know, trying to bring left media together and talk about some of the issues, you know, part of my assessment of, the struggles that um, uh, progressive staffers have are from 
conversations with Marianne who has reached out and really tried to facilitate in that respect. So I know, I mean, wow. she knows she's trying, she's tried in some ways. And I, it's an interesting question whether if she were to run, run for office, she would continue to try to use that platform to bolster, not just left media, but a kind of left pu- public policy infrastructure as well. I mean, that's an interesting question and one that we should talk about when she's in the podcast next. Um, yeah. But thank you for calling in uh, Robin. And I hope you get some sleep tonight. <laughs> Thanks so much, Bree. Have a good evening. Have a good evening. Now, we've been on the live stream aspect. Of, I mean, we've been on both call-in and live stream for two hours. I am going to end the live stream, but keep the call-in going. So can the people who are on the live stream remember to like the video? It's free to like the video and to subscribe to the channel if you're not already. I really appreciated chatting with you, but it's much nicer and more casual to be off camera. So I'm going to go ahead and end the stream. If you want to keep following the conversation and ask me a question and join the group. You can download the call-in app. If you do not have a, um, an iPhone, I I hate that. I mean, not I hate that you don't have an iPhone, but I hate that the app isn't Android-friendly yet. They're working on it. But you can listen to the end of this episode uh, in the browser once I make it public immediately after filming. Yes, it's elitist. Yes, it's bad. I'm totally with you, but that's why I did this live stream in an effort to try to fix that. Thank you all for joining the live stream. Keep the faith. Everybody on the call-in app, we're going to go for a little bit longer because the queue is quite long, Um, but it's time to end the broadcast. Bye, all. Like, subscribe. Bye. Okay, and I'm still here with you guys, and I'm going to bring... Eric to the stage. Unmute yourself and tell me what's on your mind, Eric. Hey, Brianna. Uh, like I always said, I love your show. The, uh, the Bad Face Podcast is awesome. But I uh, just had a, the conversations that have been going on and the comments that the other people have been saying has really uh, been really excellent. It's kind of throwing me off what I want to talk about. But um, I know going back to the uh, conversation you had with Swama and Chris Hedges, and I know you had some like difficulty trying to get some like concrete points for them. Mm-hmm. One of the things, a question that I think might help um, if you ever, I know you want to do something with like the, uh, the people's parties, the socialist America type of conversations is to ask them like, what is their, two, what is the organi- organization's two-year goal, five-year goal, mm-hmm. ten-year and what do they need to get to those goals? Yeah, I think that's a good, a good, question to ask although i still think we would be ending we would end up in a conversation that is extra electoral in nature which Mm. is fine but that's just not responsive to the question at hand which is what to do in an electoral cycle you know i think that they have a commitment to prioritizing non-electoral organizing which i totally get appreciate respect and wouldn't want to change it's not my lane it's not my business and the reason i listen to the both of them is because they have so much experience and i admire and respect them so much However, if we agree to the terms that we're having a conversation about what to do in 22 and 24 and you concede that we should not sit it out, then I want a more pointed que- uh, a more pointed conversation. And that question isn't just what are your two-year goals. It is <clears throat> literally the question that I ask repeatedly, which is what we should do 10 months from now and two years from now. Yes, definitely. And it's a um, hard question. I, I don't mean to think that anybody that they need to have an answer, but I would love to be able to workshop that with people who are as smart and informed as they are. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. It's hard to come up and do, to, to stick concrete points. 
another thing that I wanted to talk about is, um, I'm probably going to get a little hate for this, but I definitely think we are probably a little too hard on, on, uh, politicians like AOC. Mm. Um, I definitely view, I definitely think she had some slip ups, some mess ups. Um, but we also have to understand this is like when she talked about that she was one of the few people to come out and support the taxi drivers. One of the mm-hmm. few people on support many of these labor movements. Has she failed in some of those cases? I know, I believe that she uh, didn't show up when she said she was going to show up for one of the Amazon's uh, strikes. That was disappointing. But um, I definitely think my main issue with AOC is I definitely think is her, and this is something that if we do have any type of candidate running either as a third party or as I would prefer as some type of insurrectionist within the Democratic Party in 2024, is their staff, who they have around mm-hmm. them, come to realize is probably one of the most important things that we don't discuss. Because I definitely think if you look at AOC when she first got in versus now, I will I guarantee her the main issue is she changed her staff. Mm-hmm. She has too many, I guess I would call them smooth edged people mm-hmm. in her staff now. And she lo- and I think she needs some harder edged people in her staff. But- isn't that, and just plain devil's advocate, isn't that also on AOC to have made those staffing choices? That is true. Yeah, I agree. That is definitely on her. That is I mean, definitely- look, there's also an inventory issue. You know, people want experienced staffers. It's a hard job. They're all learning on the fly. And experienced staffers tend not to be progressive staffers because this whole new movement is, you know, fresh and new. And the, the, Washington isn't exactly friendly to our interests and efforts and people don't stay on the hill long and all of those things. So there might be a little bit of an inventory issue and a difficulty just finding a balance. But some of these people are like young 22-year-olds. A lot of staffers are extremely young. And then at the end of the day, we're not talking about experience at all. We're just talking about kind of ability and politics. I I completely, I agree with that. I can see the difficulty and definitely, uh, hashing that out and working that up but maybe the key the goal maybe the 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 thing is actually looking outside the box and not going with the status quo i don't know but that could just be like get someone who never worked in politics but just who has clear uh, understanding of a particular policy point that you agree on and can just uh workshop that and the last thing that i wanted to say before i let you go i know you have the cues kind of long is when you're talking about institutions i definitely think one of the best uh, examples of this is to me is what the gravel institute is doing mm. is that they so their main goal was they saw prager U and they saw what prager U was doing with youtube mm-hmm. and they said we are going to directly create something that's going to combat prager U. and i think that's and so far they've shown quite a bit of success with their views, if you look at some of the views on their videos, if you look at their subscription count, obviously, you know, with the YouTube algorithm, they're only going to be able to go so far. But I definitely, mm-hmm. as an example of creating left institutions, that can work. Yeah, I mean, God bless the Gravel gang. Um, fun fact, I believe I was their first video. I believe I was the, did the first uh, was the first guest recorded last, I guess it was like a, October 2020 or something, one of the few times I left the house that year. Uh, and I think that they're truly doing the Lord's work. I really appreciate that they looked around, they saw a hole, they saw a void, and they said, I'm going to fill it. And there was none of this, oh, it's going to be hard, it's an uphill battle and the algorithm and all of that. All of that remains true, whatever, but we're not manifesting that anymore. They just did it, and it matters. Everybody chip, chip, chipping away 
matters. Um, and I don't know, these, these Gen Zers are the truth. Oh, Big the, fans. Uh, I teach karate. I got a couple of the, the, some of these Gen Zers in my class that I teach and they, I, I, they, they give me hope. Look, if one of you, if one of you Gen, Z, Gen Zers are listening and you want to teach me how to use TikTok, like just, if you're just willing to sit with me on a Zoom call for 45 minutes or if you're in DC and want to mask up and meet outside and like teach me how to TikTok, that, that would be a, an important contribution to this revolution, I feel. <laughs> Okay, Brianna, thank you for uh, taking my questions. Well, more of my comments, but it's it's awesome listening to you. You're doing really great, amazing work. Thank you, Eric. I really appreciate it. Keep the faith. All right. Next up is Brian. Uh, unmute yourself and let me know what's on your mind, Brian. Hey there. Um, I guess I, I wanted to say I have really enjoyed the last couple episodes of the podcast. Um, I, thank you. As a lot of callers have talked about, I think, um, I too felt a bit like I was taking crazy pills listening to the uh, Sawant and Hedges interview. I think mm-hmm. you did a really great job. I, I don't mean to be critical of you, but I think there was just this weird like logic game that I didn't understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I came away from that really wanting to know like a prescription forward and, and left, I guess, a bit dissatisfied. I think mm-hmm. because it's a challenging question. It is hard. Uh, and I want to say that it's, I, I put guests, guests are put in a difficult spot and I should clarify that I'm not asking them to solve the world and that this is really is a conversation and we should all just try to be working it out together live. <laughs> but I know yeah. they tried and I, I don't want this to, I don't want to seem like I'm piling on them at all, even though we got a little bit in a logger jam, but go ahead, Brian. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah, totally. No, I, I just think, um, and I'm really excited. I think about the episode you alluded to earlier with some people from different third parties to continue that conversation because I'm, I'm also sort of wrestling with these ideas. Um, But something that I've been worrying about a lot recently, I think both with respect to running in the democratic party or even third party is just this dynamic that has continued to develop um, that will continue getting worse as the Republican party continues getting wilder of the idea that like Chomsky-esque idea of there being this existential threat for not voting for the, you know, the safe choice, whatever mm-hmm. I'm putting. The lesser like, of two evils. You can't see my scare quotes, but yeah. Yeah. yeah the, the lesser of two evils vote. And I, I don't, it's very difficult for me to imagine how that is not just going to dominate like every election cycle going forward. And so I think figuring yeah. out it, it Sorry to add to the list of impossible questions. <laughs> well, look, it's not with. quite impossible, right? So there's two things I would say to that. One is that I think leftists are right to be frustrated with the fact that this now combined voting rights bill that is the center of the discourse right now has these poison pills for third party candidates. And we shouldn't be kind of cowed into silence because of the import of the rest of the bill. They should just take it out. They should strip it out as easily as they stripped out the $15 minimum wage last March. Um, And the other thing is that's part of what I really appreciate about Yang's approach is that he has identified that one of the barriers to a third party candidate is that vote blue no matter whoism and that the poison pill to that is to talk about um, ranked choice voting. And if if he was able to create as much energy behind ranked choice voting as he has behind the UBI, I would consider him to have done a real service to the political discourse. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm 
I don't I I am not very familiar with the forward party, so I'm I'm eager to learn more about that. I think. Well, we're working on it. If you yeah. <laughs> if you didn't listen to um if you haven't heard it yet, we did an interview with Andrew Yang about um month ago, shortly before Christmas, where I asked him about the party, um, read his book, and hopefully either he or some other representative from Forward will be on this panel uh, next week. My dream panel is that it's Andrew Yang, um, Jill Stein, who's already agreed, and Nick Branna, who's already agreed. But we'll see. We'll see if dreams become reality. I'm manifesting that as well. Cool. Well, thanks. I look forward to it. Thanks, Brian. Tanner. Unmute yourself and let me know what's on your mind. The there you go. Oh, you're unmuted, but I still don't hear you. I'm not sure what's going on there, Tanner. I'm going to give you another beat. You're unmuted, but I can't hear anything from you. Um, Tanner, if you call back like day, I'll bring you to the front of the line. But I'm going to move on to case study, uh, so we don't have this dead air time. Case study. What's happening? Hey, what's going on, Bree? Much love to you. I really love this community that you built over here on Calling. Day needs to run for something. I'm uh, <laughs> I'm a fan of Day now, and I uh, definitely love it. I I got a couple comments and then a quick question at the end, and then I'm gonna bounce. Um, sure. All right. So AOC and her dress. My wife had a very good analogy. She said, mm. "What if a preacher went to a strip club wearing a shirt that said?" Find Jesus, <laughs> pastors out there making it rain on the strippers, right? And then um, <laughs> that—that's the analogy. I said I gotta, uh, I gotta talk about that somewhere. That's amazing, and, <laughs> right? <laughs> and then um, I, did Biden stay in the race? Oh, I was wondering what you think about Keith Ellison. If he, did, I'm an advocate like Tucker said. Tucker was on earlier, and he was mm-hmm. talking about running within the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm a, like I said in the past, calling. I'm a person that I'm all of the above. So mm-hmm. I, I really, it, it kind of pains me where I, when I hear people that say, "Oh, we definitely can't work within the Progressive Party." Yes, the squad. I agree, the squad kind of is failing us to a certain extent. And but that I think it was Tucker that said that is like a ghost ship that we just need to take over. And I wish those uh, the people in Nevada who was the socialist. Uh, the Democratic Socialists would just do a workshop of how they took over the whole Democratic uh, mm-hmm. apparatus in Nevada. And um, but anyway, uh, Keith Ellison, if he became the DNC chair. So this is an example of what we're talking about, of taking over the Democratic Party. He was somebody that's to the left uh, um, enough that I believe if he instead of Tom Perez was DNC chair. Oh, how different. 2020 mm-hmm. B Bree, where um you know Mike Ravel would have been on stage. That's one thing we know for sure, um or I think we would know for sure. Mm-hmm. And then Mike Bloomberg would not have made it mm-hmm. on stage, mm-hmm. right? So um that and man, I had so much to talk to you about. I missed the last show, and I'm glad you're still talking about 2024 um on the show. So this is the last thing I'm going to leave with, Bree. Sure. Mm-hmm. Would you work with me to try to get? The independent left, I call you all the independent left leaders because mm-hmm. you have followers on call mm-hmm. and Twitter, et cetera, et cetera. So you guys are all followers. And can we galvanize a meeting? Now, the only question would be, is, would we do it publicly? Like somebody just choose their channel and we talk about it publicly. Or maybe we should do it behind the scenes 
and have a meeting you, Katie Helper, um, and the people that's in your inner circle, like I, I would call it a circle of trust. But then once I see who that is, I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to try to reach out and people in the comments might, in the um, call-in audience might cringe or whatever. I, we need to bring everybody together. Anna Kasparian, I, 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 she just followed me a um, co- couple months ago hmm. and we had a nice DM exchange. I would love to reach out to her and say, hey, you know, we're trying to build this group of left leaders that we can um, what's the best word? I don't want to say collude, but you know, you, you mentioned this. <laughs> coordinate. You, mm-hmm. Coordinate. I like that word. But you mentioned this in the past um, calling when you said, you know, whoever that progressive is that is going to go up against Biden, we all need to decide who it is. Once we decide, we're going to wrap that person up in a bubble and try to protect them as much as possible. And I'm with you on that. So the best way to try to coordinate that now, we can't wait till the the 11th hour to, oh, let's scramble and try to organize something. We need to start talking about this now, even before Marianne, and by the way, Kyle Kalinske had like hashtag, hashtag run Marianne run. He said that in like one of his clips recently. So mm-hmm. I'm with him. And and even though I said what I said about Marianne last time about Medicare for All, and I remember that other previous person said that she was kind of waffling on it. I'm pretty confident. I've seen enough and I've seen her change. And she's the, the, the best thing about Marianne is she's a good faith act, actor. And mm-hmm. I believe that she's a good faith actor and she's she would win me over if, if she ran and there's nobody else that's more to the left of her. And I said enough. Thank you so much for having me on. No, thank you, Case. And thank you, as always, for your, your service. Um, I look, I, I, I don't want to overstate the case. I think that if there were a primary, it's hard to imagine who these candidates would be, but it is possible that we had a lot of good options to choose from. And that I wouldn't necessarily expect the left to like commit to one person if it were Marianne and Cornell West and Keongi Amata Taylor and I don't know, Bernie part two. And, you know, you can imagine, you know, AOC and Rashida Tlaib and you can imagine some scenarios where, okay, well, let's hear them out. Let's see how they perform in the debate stage. Let's see how they handle the media circuit. Let's see what their vulnerabilities are. Let's see how they come for them and which flavor of moderate attack with you know, is most easily rebutted. But at some point, it needs to not be this Bernie Warren nonsense. Uh-huh. At some uh-huh. point, you know, well, they long before a primary. <laughs> they, they started, Bernie and Warren started off excellent, which is what I want to see from our left leaders, where they kind of like teamed up against whoever was hitting them. and But it was just at the end. That's, that's yeah, at the end at the when, end. when yeah. you know, I don't have a... Um, I don't the have a button out. that makes a snake sound. But. Yes, yes, I, I hear you. This, the <laughs> knives came out. And I'm sorry, I got one last thing to say. On sure, your point mm-hmm. That um, Hate Inc., you know, Matt Tybee's book talked about how there's that pre-primary or there's that, you know, of course, they keep all the progressives out, but mm-hmm. they allow the establishments, they all have their horse. And I think we need to follow that same mindset, which is mm-hmm. what you just said. Have a whole bunch of progressive left this run and then we see who who's the best with messaging who's the best with articulating their message both to all the different coalitions you know i i think man i i really wish that jesse ventura would have ran at some point on whoever party because i think his being able to simplify i think he's like his messaging is almost like the 
the left's Donald Trump, where, you know, Donald Trump had a really third grade of vocabulary and he was able to really speak straight to the average man. And mm-hmm. I think um, Jesse Ventura had a similar talent where he was really able to boil things down to a soundbite and to a sentence. But um, I think we need to be able to do the same thing. But the, the biggest thing that the establishment does that we don't do, I think, right now is that when that person, that final person, like in the 2024 case, it was Biden. They all said, "Okay, we're going to come around Biden and wrap him up in a bubble. So we we just have to from revolutionary blackout network to um, TYT to Jimmy Dore. I I hope that we can find a a way that we can all be on the same page in 2024 for 2024. I am with you. And like I said, Give me until the weather gets a little bit better and, you know, my mood adjusts, but I promise I will live my values and reach out to some people who have been muted since force the vote and (laughs) (laughs) try to do the right thing. I am healed. I am trying to, you know, inculcate Marianne's good vibes and I will manifest that positivity and do what's right and good. So, Much love to you, Bree, and the chat. Much thank you, Case. Yep. All right, Andy. It's good to see you again. What's on now? Hi, Bree. How are you? I'm doing well. You seem very energetic. You perked me right up as we go into hour three. <laughs> well, uh, I'm sorry I haven't been here in the last couple episodes. I've been getting settled in since I'm moving in, and I'm finally settled in. But, oh, congratulations um, on the move. Thank you. Um, I had a whole thing I wanted to say about spirituality, but, you know, see, hearing everybody else, I think, um, have touched most of the points I wanted to talk about. Um, but just a couple of things. One, at first I was, you know, between Nina Turner or Marianne Williamson, I thought Nina Turner might be the more, more viable option. I don't know. I think it's still, for me, still a toss up between the two of them. Why? Unpack that for me. For Nina? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I mean, I think part of the, I think it helps that she has held office as a Democrat before. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's kind of like that institutional credibility that she has. Mm-hmm. And um, I, you know, as as much as I like Marianne Williamson, I, Williamson, I think uh, that unfortunate caricature that she has might still be a liability to her going forward. Mm-hmm. Um I wish that wasn't the case, but I, I, that's just my opinion. Um, that being said, regardless of who it is, do you think that Bernie would endorse whoever that potential successor is? and Or do you think that even matters? Ooh, that's a good question. One, I think it absolutely matters. Uh, it absolutely matters, especially if there are multiple leftists running. But even without that, you know, the imprimatur of you know, Bernie's endorsement would speak volumes about the credibility of the candidate and would say a lot because it would still be Bernie. He was a sitting senator willing to endorse someone who could be running against the president of the United States. Yeah, that, 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 that's, that's the reason why I bring it up, because, you know, in the past, Bernie did, in the end, cave to Biden. But, you know, this time around, would he be willing to actually go against the green that time around, this time around? Yeah, I mean, that would be huge. And I think it would be a real, I mean, it'd be very difficult for Bernie. Like, if Bernie st- stays out of it, I think that is not, you know, he's he would be taking a serious hit to his um, legacy. Right. Um, 
I, so the thing I didn't want to say about spirituality, I think after hearing everybody, and I think over the, uh, so I'm of the, like, the, the religion is the opiate of the masses line of thinking. I'm not very, I'm not a very religious person myself. And for the longest time I have had this, like, reflexive antagonism to it because, you know, there's, there's too many examples to count where religion has been used to, perpetuate all forms of oppression but at the same time there are you know like another caller mentioned there have been many you know progressive movements in history that were deeply entangled with spirituality and religion Mm -hmm. and i think um i have come to a place where i just i think there's just something innate to human nature that pushes us to spirituality Mm. So I can see where Marianne was coming from with her critique of like the left's commitment to secularism and its messaging and how that creates a disconnect with the general public. I don't know. What do you think about that? Well, there's a lot of words here, right? Like secularism, spirituality, religion. I mean, it, you know, spirituality is secular. I mean, it can be secular. Um, You know, Marianne, I don't know if she describes herself this way, but you know, is a secular Jew. Like I, and I'm a secular agnostic or a secular humanist, you know, is a label that I've used. Um, but that is not in conflict with spirituality. And I think whoever it was earlier that pointed out that, you know, maybe it was Day who was pointing out what ch- separation of church and state really means. You know, I understand as someone who is not religious, this, the fear, the skepticism about people who want to inject religion and all of its dogmas into the political sphere. I mean, there's a reason why that's prohibited in the Constitution. That's That shit is whack. However, um, I don't know, man. When I think about what – the way I talk about my values isn't necessarily to use the word spiritual, but upon reflection, it is. The commitment that I have to humanist values is a spiritual commitment and a belief and respect for human nature that is beyond reason. You know, I don't think that each human being deserves a base level of dignity and support because like I read it in a book somewhere or I can prove it in a theorem. I believe it because I believe it. It's, it is a spiritual, moral belief. It doesn't come from anywhere. I can't defend it on any basis other than it's just what I believe. Um, and I think that, you know, maybe the left has leaned away from that because you, it's not provable. It's not quantifiable. And maybe it can't be trusted for that reason. But I think there's something that's very relatable and extremely human to it. And it comes out, whether it's Bernie kind of grumpily talking about healthcare as a human right, or if it's Marianne being a lot more explicit about it, or if it's a Republican kind of weaponizing Jesus's teachings in order to connect with people who really have a genuine commitment to those teachings. You know, I think that is a common thread that runs through us. We are social creatures. We evolved to have this weird tether between us all. Yeah. And it I, almost feels I, negligent I, to ignore that. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry, Andy. Oh, uh, I was just um, just going to say that. Um, I think that's very powerful what you're saying. And I think it's given me a lot to think about. Uh, I, you know, I, I, still have, I still have some growing up to do. So may perhaps down the road, I might find myself through some, you know, coming to spirituality arc. Um, I will say, uh, just a final off topic note. I remember in your, um, in your discussion with Kashama and Chris, there was a little bit of exasperation at your point where you kind of felt fatigued and tired of having, going over these circular conversations. I would say that, um, it's a little bit off topic, but if you were to like do like a, like a side 
podcast where it's just like all like cultural uh, criticism or just like media, like or any like media criticism, I would be hundred percent down for you to do that. <laughs> well, look, I have been trying to convince my friend Joe, who has been on Bad Faith podcast uh, and who was my original co-host back when I had Spody podcast, someone's wrong on the internet to do another podcast with me on Colin. I tell him it's low stakes. You know, you're so handsome. It's a bit of a waste, but we can do this Colin thing and we can just have fun and have an outlet. And at least I would be talking to you once a week, the way we used to back in the day, because I miss you. And he's a little reluctant because he has a real job now before he was, you know, trying to be a writer and, and working on campus and uh, where we went to school. And now he has like a job job and he doesn't know how that would fly with them. But I think for the greater good of the left and all of our spirits, <laughs> we should have a fun creative outlet. Someone was on here maybe saying to me that like the right has it that knows what to do. They have like sports podcasts and they talk about MMA and they talk about all these other kinds of things and get people in through these cultural back doors. And the left doesn't do as much of that. Although we do have some good podcasts about like, gaming and movies and the West Wing thing and stuff like that. But we could use more of it. Also, I would like more maybe feminine spaces on the left because I see there's a big appetite for, you know, people are online doing makeup tutorials and all of these women are doing direct-to-camera analyses of movies and Emily in Paris and they're so smart and analytical and contrapoints, you know. And I don't know how to get them to come over to Bad Faith. I see these huge YouTube audiences and like, oh, I want to hang out with the girls. Like, how can we have spaces that make ex- uh, politics seem more, I don't know, like that we political spaces that we can feel comfortable in. So I'm working on it. All right. Well, thank you so much, Bree. Thank you, Andy. Uh, all right, Christopher, unmute yourself and tell me what's on your mind. Uh, hello. Uh, thanks for taking my call. And if I sound a little weird, that's just, uh, we've got Omicron at my house. So, uh, but uh, otherwise, I'm sorry. Uh, good to call. Thank you uh, for that. Uh, so yeah, huge fan, uh, patron. Um, so one of the things I really love about your work uh, is your ability to reach out to uh, you know different academics and ask questions that you don't really see in a, see addressed in uh, other bits of the media or other podcasts. Um, one topic I've been interested in is uh, you keep asking in a lot of the episodes, uh, you know, what can we do, like actually practically do materially. Uh, and so that always makes me think of China because, you know, they're the other major industrial power and they are doing something different. And they're, you know, uh, living the experience. And uh, with the new uh, Cold War rhetoric that's kind of ramping up and how much we talk about China, uh, I've noticed that in no Western media outlets do I ever really see us talking to China. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I couldn't tell you of any uh, academics or policymakers from the, you know, uh, you know, from actually China, you know, uh, on there to discuss their own project, their own country. Uh, so basically, a short one uh, one question asked was, uh, uh, do you know of any Chinese academics you could uh, uh, talk to? Or um, I would just be very curious to hear in their own words. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So I have known that we need to do a China episode for a long time. And I reached out to some folks about it. And I talked to producer Ben about it because he... I always forget exactly what his master's was in, but it's like East Asian political something, something with a focus on Russia. So he has a better sense of what's going on in the field and who would be good to talk about things. My feeling is that the less I know about a subject, the more I want a bigger panel with ideological um, diversity. 
because I don't have as much confidence in myself to have the knowledge to push back when necessary. And that is why I've been dragging my feet on doing anything China related because I don't want to get in a situation like some people were mad at me about the Ethiopia episode we did. I tried to make that a panel too, by the way, but so few people were willing to talk with each other and on the record that it ended up just being the one woman from Amnesty International. So I'm working on it. I know that it's a um, hole for me. It's a deficit for me. Uh, and I'm going to work on being better. <laughs> it's so funny in this job. It's like, okay, go be an expert on something that you've never dipped your toe in in your entire life and then come back a week later and be authoritative about it. And I, I have some mixed feelings about even trying to do that, like trying to represent myself in that way. On one hand, we should all learn and get better. On another hand, on the other hand, it's, it feels a little weird to be holding myself out in any kind of expert capacity when like, it's not my lane. And there's so many people at other lefty podcasts who know what they're talking about. Do I have to cover every subject? I don't know. I have mixed feelings about it, but I, I want to, I want to be better on this topic. And, um, I appreciate any, uh, ideas you have as to who would be a good panelist for a China episode. Oh, well, uh, uh, I am totally blank. That's why I called in. Yeah, I've been looking and I watch uh, foreign media, you know, France 24, uh, you know, Guardian of the UK. And I've been looking for opinion uh, writers, um, uh, anything really. And there's just kind of a void um, in, in Western media. Yeah, well, let's let's put our heads together. If anybody who's listening wants to reach out and put in the comments of this episode or you know, send to me on uh, the Patreon comment section. Actually, just put it on this episode, right? Any suggested guests for a China episode, ideologically diverse, even people you don't disagree with, I'd appreciate your, their names. And we might even be able to put this together for this week because I have not yet planned Thursday's oh. episode. And I'm realizing it's Tuesday and I need to get on the stick. <laughs> yeah, the, the one that I think too is uh, the one unique thing. Uh, there are so many experts in the West about China. But, mm. uh, what I've uh, definitely wanted to see is a, an actually an expert from China. Yeah, I hear um, you on that. And I, I think you're right. So anyway, well, thank you, Brie. Uh, keep up the great work. Thank you, Christopher. Keep the faith. Um, Sylvester, welcome back. What's on your mind? Uh, what's on my mind? Are, are you good? Last time we got you a little riled up. Today. <laughs> <laughs> I to make sure that homie, homie's good too. I gotta make sure he's good. He survived. He's okay. I don't think he's you know uh, registering any complaints anywhere. We had a lovely time. <laughs> okay, okay, that's what we talk about. <laughs> Love is in the air in 2022. I'm with that. Love that might be a good. little bit of an overstatement. Okay, but, we you know, like is in the air. Like is in the air. You know he. He was straight of limb, as my grandmother would say, which now that I say it out loud, sounds a little ableist, but she's of a different generation. So. <laughs> what, what, what's, what's on your mind today, Sylvester, what's outside of my, my love life? Today? Um, one, I want to show some love today. I don't know if Day's still in the room, but I love whenever Day come on. So I got to I want to show some love. Look, do I have to be worried? Is Day about to take my podcast from me? Uh, y'all the, the might day get, love. <laughs> y'all might have to get a little duo thing going. I don't know. <laughs> we got to collaborate. Maybe the y'all, maybe the second podcast is uh, uh, day day and Bree hit the airwaves. We need the BG and day uh, merch drop soon <laughs> asap. Okay, maybe that'll fund that left infrastructure that we talking about. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> um, but you know, some some I wanted to ask is two things. So we're gonna go, you know, electoral, and then we're gonna go outside of electoral. Uh, the first thing we'll go electoral. 
um, you know, we're talking about, you know, candidates and, you know, policies and everything. And um, I'm wondering why is it that it seems like to me and this I don't know if you're seeing it in different places, but why does it seem like we're not talking about things? I mean, because like gerrymandering is going to have a lot of people met, looking messed up, looking crazy. Um, and when you look at the elections, 2022-2024 makes it a lot more difficult to kind of get the people in that we want to get in. And then it doesn't make any, you know, it doesn't help that the Democratic Party right now is basically sabotaging itself, knowing things like voting rights isn't going to pass, um, killing Build Back Better after it separated it um, uh, from the infrastructure bill. Why is, Why are more people not talking about one, when I think about the gerrymandering, since there's a three, uh, there's a majority across the House, Senate um, and the presidency about abolishing the Electoral College. Um, that's one. And then also on the second thing, something I always kind of hark back to is the direct democracy. And that kind of goes to the, you know, Gravel Institute, just because, I mean, if we can have all the representatives, but if they don't have to listen to what, you know, this constituents want and the uh, the incentives that are propping them up to be able to seem like Joe Manchin, it could look like the real president or Kristen Sinema could look like the real president, then it doesn't really, you know, get to like the root cause of the issue. So on the electoral side, why do you think there isn't more discussion about abolishing the electoral and then on direct democracy to circumvent um, elected officials not heeding the will of the people? I think the answer to the first one is the same reason that there's not really that much enthusiasm about D.C. statehood. I mean, not enthusiasm among people, but much vocalization among elected officials about D.C. statehood or giving Puerto Rico the option to decide what it wants to do, um, even though it would enormously advantage liberals, the Democratic Party. They seem to feel like if they advocate for something that's obviously in their partisan advantage, that it makes them look bad. And Republicans have no qualms. Like <laughs> if Republicans thought that DC was going to be red, if Republicans thought that, you know, you know, they'd be trying to make, you know, Guam, you know, the, the 51st <laughs> state, like whatever it took, they would yeah. do it. Um, look at, look at them gerrymandering their ass up. I, I was looking up some quotes because Megan, Megan, um, <sighs> Kelly and I, sorry, I don't know why I couldn't get Megan McCain out of my head. Megan, Ooh. Kelly and I earlier, we were supposed to be talking mostly about voting That's rights. We didn't touch it that much. But I was I was looking up stats about um, what Republicans thought about gerrymandering and stuff. And it's like bipartisan disapproval. Like nobody likes partisan gerrymandering. Nobody does. Nine out of ten right. voters are a thumbs down on partisan ger gerrymandering. But Republicans, they don't care. They, they do what it takes. And I think what liberals don't understand is that like someone cannot like something and vote for you anyway. You know, people, mm, yeah. I, I've written about this in some other articles. It's like never been the topic of an article, but I've buried this argument in some other pieces that I wrote back in like 2018 when I was still writing. Um, liberals talk a lot about polls and isolation, mm -hmm. but people prioritize their politics. So it's not enough to say, you know, people want whatever it is. Um, let's say we're talking about Republican people want, you know, low taxes or whatever, or people want a fifteen dollar minimum wage, even Republicans, right? People want healthcare, even Republicans. If they prioritize CRT, if they prioritize, you know, mask, you know, being anti-mask mandates, if they prioritize whatever else it is, then it doesn't matter. 
So it's not just the act of running on populist issues. It's making sure you're talking in a way that makes sure that people prioritize those things or you capitalize on what they do prioritize. And that can work both ways. You can change the priorities the way that Christopher Rufo and CRT has done, or you can acknowledge what priorities already exist. So in 2020, the priority was getting Trump out of office. And I would argue that Bernie should have done more talking about why he was – I mean he did some. I don't mean to like undermine the efforts of all the people in the campaign. Like that was definitely a message out there. But Bernie should have talked more about how he could beat Trump and that he was better than Biden at beating Trump and should have talked about Biden's vulnerabilities more. Because like it or not, as much as you know how I love to talk about how everybody loves Medicare for all and all these polls and stuff, that was not voters' priority. Voters' priority was beating Trump. Black voters didn't want another ad with a black person in it with a hard hat on talking about bringing black jobs to Detroit. That would be great. We didn't do any of those, by the way, but that would have been great. But what what you want to do to convince black voters, we, we had an ad at one point that went out just before South Carolina that had a South Carolina state rep, I think, who had flipped from Biden to Bernie and her talking about why. That's a fine ad. What black voters in South Carolina really wanted to know was who was going to be able to beat Trump. That's, That's the ad. And it is, you can put some black people in it. But it's not even like a black focused ad. It's not a black yeah. issue. It's just people want to know, including black people, who's going to be Trump. That's it. So I feel like I've gone on a tangent and not answered your question. <laughs> uh, well, no, no, you did. You did. Basically, what you said was like they scared. They scary. Yeah. <laughs> that's why they don't. That's why they don't talk because of polling. They think if it's in their advantage and. Uh, yeah, it looks too look self-interested or something. It's like, yes, you're self-interested. You're a party. You should be interested in your own survival, which is why this whole voting rights thing is so fucked. Like, right. it's so self-defeating. But it also, too, enforces people, you know, to talk, get out of their own echo chambers and actually talk to everybody. Because a lot of times you won't go to certain states just because you already know what time it is over there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so again, it, you know, it, it, whenever, you know, they talk about really going across the aisle, that would be one way to, you know, I guess, go across the aisle. And then I guess the other thing was the the um, the direct democracy. Why well, we probably know why they don't talk about that, because then <laughs> it can circumvent what they got going on. You know, right. we have more say. Yes. And also, I do think even I mean, that's why I think the powers that be don't are invested. But I also think some pundits are also not it's not just the left pundits that are afraid of looking unserious. It's like mainstream liberal pundits, too, that, you know, sometimes an idea seems so new, you know, (laughs) you know, add, add, you know, pack the court, you know, get rid of the electoral college. Like some of the stuff just feels so new that people are unwilling to talk about it and take it seriously. And if we had a real left media who was talking about these ideas, it could shift the Overton window as to what is considered to be, you know, realistic conversation. The right is out here reinventing the wheel every other day, you know, saying it's illegal. It should be illegal to talk about slavery in the fifth grade classroom and all this stuff. (laughs) And we're concerned that like ideas that have been around since the founding fathers, you know, ideas that have already been like threatened in terms of like Supreme Court packing and stuff are um beyond the pale yeah no but I, you know i think that you know you, you keep on talking about andrew yang he kind of keeps on coming up forward party and things like that i mean mm-hmm. the, the the uh the bottle lightning in a bottle that he captured with uv at the time that he did it i think that um when you do talk about a direct democracy you might be able to catch that same bottle just because um like uh uh a lot of the right wing, they don't really feel secure about, you know, votes and things like that and um, what's going on in Washington. And it's almost like you, you're telling them, I want to empower you more. Actually, you know, you start having that conversation and kind of flipping it like, 
okay, like they realize that a lot of these people are like, you know, bought off or whatever, but it's the cultural tribal things that keep them from talking to people who they probably have more in common with if they actually took the time to have the conversation um, than they don't, than with the people that they supporting up in Washington. So, you know, I think there, there could be uh, a lane there to, you know, where you're going to get that left side and then you're going to get you're going to get some of that right side, too, because everybody gets more empowered when it's, you know, hey, one person, one vote. If we really feel strongly about something, we get to push it. Right. Yeah. Amen. You amen. Know, so- Although I will say some voters have been convinced of this idea that there's like this tyranny. I mean, tyranny of I mean, Look, there's obviously some risk about majoritarian rule, but checks and balances and all that. But some people, mm. some people are really convinced by this notion that the masses are just dumb rubes and shouldn't have control. And like <laughs> members of the masses will be like, "Oh yes, we're too dumb and we shouldn't be in charge. Let Trump do it. He's obviously earned the right because he has a golden toilet and all of that stuff." So there's a lot of like, I just want, I want there to be a healthy self-esteem among voters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> you know. There's a lot of work to do, but like I, I agree that I think that the left needs to talk about things that are that seem implausible in order to make the ground more fal- uh, fertile for us for for mainstream people to have these conversations, and that goes for this general strike stuff too. It kills me that we can't even talk. I never even heard of a general strike. I don't know what that is until like yeah. a year ago. And I just want to talk about it because to me, I'm like, oh, look at all of these historical examples of people who brought an entire country to their knees through this thing called a general strike. Like, wow, that's empowering to know that it's even an option. I'm not saying it's going to happen next Tuesday. Right. But if we're not having a conversation and letting people know that this is even an option on the table, how are we ever even going to grow to this in 100 years? Mm-hmm. And the left go. wants to seem serious and doesn't want to have a conversation and tells you all the reasons why it's never going to happen and therefore we shouldn't be talking about it. And it's so self-defeating. Yeah, it's that loser mentality that you was talking about earlier. And and that was the next point that I was going to get to on the outside of the electoral strategy part was uh, we might have a situation in California. You know the uh, uh, Colorado strikers from Kroger? Mm-hmm. So out here, I don't know if you heard about it, but in Long Beach, they um, they voted for hero pay in the city of Long Beach at the one of the Kroger stores out here. But then as soon as that happened, the store, they, they closed them down. Mm, right mm-hmm. so they closed them down people's upset about it but it's like, all right boom store closed that's done right so the store where i live in cerritos actually where um they just interviewed a, uh someone who oh, works right. there and basically like, circle flashing like it's picking up your voice but i can't hear you can anybody else hear sylvester y'all can hear me Oh, you can? I, oh, getting hard. You, you giving me the Apollo? It's time to go. You cannot hear Sylvester. Can y'all hear me? Give me a heart. Y'all can hear me. Some likes. Okay. Everybody I don't know what all that means. Okay, I'm going to make Max a speaker so I can talk to Max about what he can hear. Max, can you hear Sylvester? Max. Oh, uh, Max is gone. Go. Try Michael. Oh, okay, Max dipped on me. Michael, I'm going to make you a speaker, and you tell me if you can hear Sylvester. Michael? What's going on here? Hey, oh, Max. Hello. Michael, somebody. Am I the only one who can't hear Sylvester? Unmute yourself, Max. Hello? Yes, hey, I can Max, I can, can you hear you. Sylvester? Yeah, I can hear Sylvester, yeah. Max, are you talking? Yes, I'm. Can you guys hear me? I can hear you, I Sylvester. Can't I can hear you, Max. Is it a knee problem? Yeah, you got beef with us? What's going on? Okay, these guys don't mean anything. Give me 
a heart. If if you can hear everybody, then it's just me. If you can, if everybody can hear everybody except for me, give me hearts. Oh, I don't God. know if you're trying to tell us that you know we ain't got to go home, but we can't be here. <laughs> okay, 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 okay. I don't. I really don't know what to do with that. Okay. Um. Okay. I don't, I don't know. I would say do. plug everything out and then plug um, it back so in, but you'd lose us. And then right. invite you back. Love everybody. Um, Can you? And I'm going to. Max, can you talk? Yeah. Can you, can you hear me, Brianna? Max isn't even getting the talking bubble. So I'm going to remove him from speakers. Michael refuses to unmute himself. He's taking some kind of bizarre stand here, so I'm going to move him from here. No, I I, I just got up. Oh, Michael. Oh, sorry. Sorry about that, Michael. Uh, get back in the queue. I'm going to bring Sylvester back. Sylvester. Hello? Again. Can you hear me now? Oh, I still cannot hear you. Wow. Guys, this is a bummer. It seems like everybody can hear everybody except for me, which... So it's kind of hard to do your show. <laughs> if I could just say, talk into the void, but I can't hear you. So, look, we're we're coming up on the three-hour mark anyway, so maybe this is a good place. Just I know the queue is long, and there's lots of you in it, but maybe this is a good place to stop regardless. Yeah, you can't be mad at me. We went for three hours. Yeah, three hours. You're right about that. We will be back. Please, if you were in the queue... Just write down your question. We can talk <laughs> about it on Friday. It doesn't matter if it's topical or not. Or germane to the episode. I'm really sorry. I don't know what's going on. I know that they're still working out some technical stuff with Colin. Maybe this is the Lord's way of telling me that I need to eat dinner and stop this three-hour stream. But you I apologize for whatever's going on here. I, Sylvester, I can see your like little yellow circle going like you're talking. But I promise you, I'm not gaslighting you. I truly can't. <laughs> so, I actually um, feel very gaslit. I'm going to call it. <laughs> I really appreciate all of you. Thank you for joining in. It's been a nice big room. Go ahead and like and follow the podcast. You know, I sometimes don't schedule these rooms until kind of the last minute. So you'll want to get an alert as to when a new room is up. Follow me. Follow the podcast. If you haven't already subscribed to Bad Faith YouTube, please do that. That's free. You know, you can you can consider a Patreon subscription if it's in your budget. I really appreciate that. Um, and until next time, please do keep the faith. pilot in a podcast wish i had a strong donkey that can holla ass and travel with portable speakers playing boss scats wish i had a million dollars i wish i had a million albums i wish i had a million problems that way i couldn't pinpoint all a million outcomes i wish i found a genie lamp i wish them girls gave me them sugar like beanie man yeah. i wish i was a comedian late night sitcom syndicated on tv land i wish this well had water in it these kids are stealing all my pennies. Focused on my wealth. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish for help. It's like, it's like, I wish I wish. Every time we dive in, it feels just like this.
wish, I wish. Every time we do it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish. Every time we love it, it feels just like this. I